Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. You're not cheating on your wife if you eat my lemon square. Your lemon squares taste like ass. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking ancient black sin. We're talking jump scares. And we're talking there's something wrong with Arena. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace, and we're talking, I've never been unhappy before. Things have always gone swell for me, Joe. (laughs) (laughs) The white male privilege. It's so funny because I don't think it was a joke back then. No, I don't think so either. (laughs) But uh, yeah, everyone, we are discussing Jacques Turner's 1942 classic Cat People. Um, A classic of the genre. I I already Mm -hmm. said a classic. A a hallmark of the genre. (laughs) A classic hallmark. No, wait, that's something different, too. (laughs) But, okay, wait, wait, wait. So, why don't we bring in our expert guests on this, though? Because, yeah, we have someone who is really, really excited to talk about this movie, everyone. And, uh, okay, so she is the author of the upcoming book, Queer for Fear, Horror Film and the Queer Spectator, which will analyze the relationship queer people have to horror films, building upon decades of theory that previously emphasized horror's queerness as being subtextual, allegorical, and figurative. Please welcome... Dr. Heather Petricelli. Hi, thank you. So happy to be here. And I'm just going to quickly say, it is proper to say it's Jacques Tourneur's cat people, but I would say Jacques Tourneur and Val Luton's cat Mm -hmm. people. Yeah, (laughs) that's fair. Because big big writing contribution from Luton, right? (laughs) I mean, yes, I'm sure I'm... Well, I'm like I'm saying I'm sure we'll get into it. I have no idea. I have no idea if we will. But yes, like (laughs) Luton had a... He was a meticulous producer so he had a hand in every film that he was part of a very deep deep hand (laughs) (laughs) i'll say i always feel bad because i just refer to all i mean i'm doing it right now i refer to all of his films as luton's films like i often don't even give the directors the credit they're probably due it just feels like luton truly did he had ownership over every component of these films and i feel like you can see it when you look at his oeuvre Mm mm-hmm I, I yeah I agree I actually always call it Val Luton's cat people. Yes, exactly. So Heather, um, when would you want to come and talk about this movie? Wait, do I give the real answer? Uh, sure. yeah, yeah, give <laughs> us the real answer. Oh my god, that, that has me more enticed actually. Well, I thought you guys asked me to talk about this. I was going to say it's not exciting. I reached out to Heather because I was like, this is a perfect film for her. I'm sorry. Um, why is this a perfect film for you, Heather? Well, I will say, like, I'm not a person that de- like deals in favorites. It's not my I, I just don't believe in them because things hit you for different reasons at different times, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But a number of years ago, a friend of mine, Stacey Ponder from Gaylords of Darkness, she had asked if I would do like a thing where I do my top 20 favorite films. Right. And I was like, I don't do favorites. And she's like, shut the <laughs> fuck up. Just do the favorites. And so <laughs> sounds like Stacey. Yeah. <laughs> and I did. And I wound up doing it chronologically because I thought that was an easy way of kind mm, of like yeah. working around what my favorite is. But when I got to the 40s, I did Cat People. So mm. yeah, it's a film that I can, I mean, we'll get into it. I can talk about it for a long time because <laughs> it's a film that gives you no answers and the way you can analyze it 
I mean, people will be continually analyzing it for, you know, decades and years to come. So, yeah. Joe, uh, and you had seen this film before? I had, yeah. So I've seen a couple of the Luton staples. So we covered The Seventh Victim last year with David mm-hmm. Demchek, and that was one that I had been kind of hot and cold on when I first watched it. But Cat People was like an immediate favorite uh when i first watched it back in college and it was my introduction to luton so i i almost feel like i started with the best but maybe it's better to think of it the way that you're describing heather which is that this is just one of the ones that i think has both the simplest answer in terms of a reading like people can look at this and say yeah this is exactly what this movie's about but i think it's also one of the more complex ones like this one and i walked with a zombie to me are the richest texts mm, yeah yeah this is this was a first time watch for me but funnily enough i had recently just watched um shutter's 101 scariest movie moments and this is on there and mm-hmm. for the for the pool scene and uh, this is okay. one of the 12 films I hadn't seen on their list and I posted something on Twitter and I was like hey like you know what should I prioritize and literally the first reply was from someone that went well I just watched Cat People you can skip that one and I was like oh (laughs) well I'm actually literally about to cover that in like two weeks so (laughs) also to that person go fuck yourself (laughs) yes I I don't I guess I double that. I, I think it's just that when people, again, when they're told, oh, it's something really, really scary, and you give them a movie from the 40s, people have trouble adjusting to what was scary in the 40s. And maybe like, you know, I mean, we have a jump scare here. And like the pool scene, I do think is very scary. But for mm-hmm. your modern viewer, they might be like, well, this is kind of boring. I can see it. I politely disagree. <laughs> yeah. it. It. I mean, it's complicated, I guess, because... Well, what is scary, right? There's so yes. many ways to define it. And there are actually scary layers of this because this is a film all about the other. And there's a scariness mm-hmm. to the fact that like, you know, we're going to make it queer because it is just a queer subtext throughout the entire film to yes. me. But some other kind of others, others in the world could put their own you know, marginalization into the narrative. And there's a lot of scary stuff in that. But if you're looking for, you know, gore i mean i don't even know what the fuck they're even wanting <laughs> well, <laughs> but okay. they're wrong they're just, I'm just saying they're wrong uh, to clarify i am not saying this movie is boring but i'm saying if you should go show this to let's say your average 17 year old that's out in the streets today they're probably going to find this movie very dull okay but here's what i'm going to say back mm-hmm. you have to contextualize everything yes. right yes period mm-hmm. so i just want to say when this movie came out in 1942 mm-hmm. like that pool scene with the way the sound is mixed people were literally losing their fucking minds and screaming in mm-hmm. the theaters mm-hmm. so you have to give it it's like almost like you give it its respect for what it was in the time and how it moved the needle forward right to where you are today where you can watch i mean literally we can watch almost anything right like the things we see now you're just like well there we go mm-hmm. yeah so, but that's i always feel like i have to give that caveat of yeah y'all remember in the 40s like people did find this scary and you can see it there but you just can't put our modern scare tactic like judgments on a movie from the 40s you know Yes. Right. And, and I, do, I wouldn't, I mean, it is a horror film, but I wouldn't even tell people, hey, go watch this horror film. I would go say, go watch this incredible movie. Right. <laughs> so. mm. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me a little bit sad when we have to have these conversations about older films. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that line even is a bit tenuous to the point where sometimes we cover films from like the 70s and 80s and people say, oh, well, that's just a little bit old. Why aren't you doing more contemporary stuff? And <laughs> 
okay, way to make me feel like a, a big pile of salt in the corner that gets blown away in the dust storm. But I think at the end of the day, Heather, you're absolutely right. It's all about context. But I think it's also just really important that we remain media literate, right? Like we need to be able to understand how films were produced back in different decades uh, by different people, different countries even. And be able to provide that kind of context, but then also appreciate the kind of artistry and how the film ages and what its influence is. Like, you can yeah. look at this movie as a piece of art because I think it is just so fucking gorgeous. But also, like, I look at this film and I think this is the first maybe jump scare I've seen in a horror film. I'm, yeah. I'm sure somebody will debate me on that. But to me, this is like a really clear example of what people now consider the definition of scary, where they want jump scares a la Conjuring Insidious all the time. And I'm like, well, it's right there in that <laughs> sidewalk chasing with the bus. Well, it's kind of like a thing where it's like, you know, respect your elders, right? Like, honestly, I gain more of an appreciation for modern horror films after watching things from pre fuck what 1980 <laughs> mm-hmm. just because it's like look like like look where where we came from right so right. i don't know but but speaking of learning about production of of the olden days the, the days of yore um <laughs> let's talk about how this movie got made i'm going to give that segue a c plus <laughs> <laughs> So Cat People was the first of the films produced by Val Luton at RKO, and its success permitted him to extend a brief but extraordinary creative run through 10 more pictures made between 1942 and 1946. And I I don't know if we did like a Val Luton primer in our episode on The Seventh Victim, and I don't really have much of one here, but just a quick thing. So Luton had originally gotten a foothold in the film business through his aunt, uh, the great Russian actor Ala Nazimova, and subsequently served producer David O. Selznick at MGM. Wait, I just have to interrupt and ask, did you guys go into the whole history of Ala Nazimova? That? I don't know if we did that. I'm just saying, just because bitch was like amazing. She was an out person during the silent era who threw crazy queer parties so I, I'm, I, the reason I think it's important is that Val and his mother and his sister lived with her when they came to the United States. And I think that that kind of very queer influence mm. being you know, raised in a household with Nazimova totally made a difference in who he turned out to be. So, okay, I, go ahead. Sorry no, to interrupt. No, that, that, that's excellent. Um, but yeah, so Selznick is our, you know, go listen to our Rebecca episode on that. And um, yeah, so he worked with Selznick for eight years as a writer, story editor, and general literary advisor. Um, but in March of 42, he ended his relationship with Selznick to go work for RKO Radio Pictures' Charles Corner, uh, becoming the head of a new unit created to develop B-movie horror films in an attempt, well, partially in an attempt to compete with Universal's horror films at the time. And this would have been just after The Wolfman came out. Right. And they were desperate because they were in massive, like Arkea was in a massive financial crisis because of their boy wonder Orson Welles. Yes, because so that was because so Citizen Kane, while, you know, generally considered one of the greatest film ever made, had a lot of controversy during it. (laughs) Well, and it was a notorious flop. So we regard it as a huge classic, but it was a big money loser at the time. Yeah, Yeah, massive. And then like the Magnificent Ambersons came right on the heels and that like totally has a whole history that escalated. So basically, RKO was really in dire straits. So they were hurt. Well, and uh, that from the magnet. Oh God, was the magnificent um, Ambersons. Ambersons. The magnificent Ambersons, because they had this. Cat people uses some of the sets from that film because they were like <laughs> trying to cut corners. 
Yes. Well, sure. But I mean, that's pretty common practice for these times as well. Like mm -hmm. Archaea would have owned sets and they would have said, cool, how do we make 12 more movies using the same thing? Just light it a little differently. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Cat People had a budget of around $135,000, which was significantly smaller than Universal had for, I mean, let's say uh, their Frankenstein meets the Wolfman in 43. But more than the 97000 that the Poverty Row Studio PRC spent on the 1940 film The Devil Bad. So we're looking like a, you know, it's not a big budget film, but it's also not like micro budget for the time. Mm -hmm. Luton selected most of the film's main crew, including Jacques Turner and writer DeWitt Bodine. And again, we have another queer in Mr. Bodine, uh, who all worked on the treatment. So... These were people Luton had connected with through their work with Selznick, and Luton called Turner from RKO to direct the film after uh, RKO's Co Charles Corner attended a party where it was suggested to him that he develop a film with the title Cat People, and Luton wasn't really sure what to do with the title, um, and he basically said, I don't want to make a cheap horror movie that the studio ex is expecting, but something intelligent and in good taste. Bodine had previously watched British and American horror and suspense films that he felt were typical of what they did not want to do, uh, feeling that werewolves, vampires, and man-made monsters were over-exploited by that time. <laughs> oh boy, if he could have only seen the future. <laughs> oh my god. I mean, here's the thing. I I'm not generally a werewolf, like, person, so I, I wasn't, like not looking forward to this movie but just given that it's whole like, oh, like we have a thing turning into something else and blah 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 but mm -hmm. i actually i like this more than the wolfman personally <laughs> it's just a very different kind of film and amusingly enough you could easily look at that budget as a restriction to why we get the film that we do compared to something like the wolfman and its contemporaries but mm -hmm. yeah i mean oh gosh this is gonna sound like it's all hoity-toity but i just think there's an elegance to the way that they handle the creature in this where they're not trying to stun people with the practical effects because they just didn't have the money for it. So they're like, okay, how do we get creative around what could be considered a restriction? Mm -hmm. Which we see in horror through all the decades after this. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, I think that there's a direct line between Val Luton's like, work and someone like Oz Perkins. Yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, so Bodine then began researching cat-related literature, including Ambrose Bierce's The Eyes of the Panther and Margaret Irwin's Monsieur Seeks a Wife. Uh, Luton decided to base the film on Algernon Blackwood's 1906 short story Ancient Sorceries, which had a contemporary setting and involved a French town inhabited by a group of devil-worshipping cat people. <laughs> Unfortunately, the rights were about to be purchased, so Luton changed his mind at the last minute and told Bodine that the film would then be set in contemporary New York and involve a love triangle between a man... A foreign woman obsessed with abnormal fears and a female office worker. And so Bodine described the screenplay as a group project, saying Luton had the original idea and wrote the treatment and the screenplay, uh, collaborating with Turner and Luton, and later the film's editor, Mark Robson. So by May of 42, Bodine had a 50 page treatment completed for Cat People, thanks to Mr. Luton. Wow. Okay. We haven't started filming yet, though, so on July 14th, 1942, it was, of course, submitted to the censor board, and there were three major problems with the screenplay that they had to kind of work around. So Here we go. Yeah, so of course <laughs> we had the general gruesomeness and horror angles of the film, the suggestion of Arena's illegitimacy, which I'm assuming means her um, immigrant status? It could just be 
that because she's a foreigner, we yeah. don't really like we don't know anything about her family. But then everything she tells us about what happens in the village suggests that she could be either illegitimate or something like that. Yeah, like she's not legally in the country. She escaped and just came here. I think more her character is in question in terms of like, well, where did she come from? Who are these people? Are they good? Got it. Well, the big other problem with this screenplay was the overarching problem that Oliver and Arena are not consummating their marriage. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, as a Canadian. They had a problem with the fact that they weren't consummating Mm -hmm. them? Okay, okay, go ahead. Basically, because then the entire plot of the film if you will is revolving around this woman who won't have sex with her husband so it's not i don't think it's the fact that they weren't having sex but the fact that it just then made the entire film about their sex life or lack thereof right okay now i want the canadian take on this okay so i was going to say oh well that's hilarious from a canadian perspective because y'all are so obsessed with sex but (laughs) now that i understood uh, like oh no that perfectly tracks with the u.s like Absolutely terrified of sex. You folks are the arenas of the film world. We're so terrified of sex that just the fact that people aren't having sex is still too much sex for this movie. (laughs) I I mean, it's really amazing, actually. (laughs) (laughs) So principal photography began on July 28th of 1942 at RKO's Gower Gulch Studios in Hollywood. And apparently Turner was nearly fired three days into shooting after executive producer Lou Ostro saw the dailies called Luton and told him to fire him because he didn't like what he was seeing. <laughs> Luton then contacted uh, RKO's Kerner, who viewed the raw footage, and uh, he's like, I-, I think it looks fine. And the movie continued production. <laughs> Bizarre. <laughs> um, another wrinkle was that Simone Simone, who plays Arena, uh, frequently clashed with co-stars. Occasionally Turner during the shoot, um, but she apparently, and again, like I, I don't even like reporting on this shit because it's like, well, it's a woman in the 40s and there's a lot of sexism, but Apparently, she had a significant temper, and I have that in quotes, but Jane Randolph, who plays Alice, felt that Simone frequently upstaged her during their scenes together, to the point that Turner confronted Simone and chastised her in French. Simone apparently intentionally poured coffee on one of her costumes in order to halt production for the day, which is a true diva move. Which, I mean, first of all, I'm giving her snaps. Secondly, (laughs) have you ever read the book The Sewing Circle? Mm-mm. So it's all about like lesbians in Hollywood because, you know, yeah, nice. <laughs> and basically Luton's auntie, Nazimova, is like central to it. But the reason Simone Simone was supposedly, um, what was the word you used? Temperamental? Is that yes. the, that's that our, our air quote word? Yeah. Was that Dietrich told her, act like a fucking diva. You are the star. Like you will become the star that you behave like. Kind of uh, like, so there was like a little bit of like kind of sapphic um, play behind mm. the scenes to kind of have Simone Simone be a little um, <laughs> temperamental. Well, and hmm. again, though, it's like if I, if I hear words from a man calling a woman temperamental in the 40s, I'm kind of like, was she temperamental or was she just saying words? <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> was she just existing as a person? <laughs> yeah, I think she probably... My guess is that she probably had opinions and said things. Right. But also was purposefully putting on airs in a way that thought that that was going to help her Hollywood career. Because she was relatively new to Hollywood at that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but she was a huge star in France, was she not? Yeah, she was a pretty big star in France, yes. Yeah. 
Well, on top of that, Turner was also clashing with higher-ups at RKO who wanted to see more of the cat and none of this shadow nonsense. Uh, that's my word, not <laughs> Okay, well, you gave us a fucking budget of pennies. <laughs> what do you want us to do? <laughs> well, and that's, it even went over budget. So filming concluded in August, so about a month later. Um, the film's final cost sheet was about $141,000, which was about $22,000 over budget. So, Ooh. yeah, I mean, the shadows, um, while they were probably cost-effective, still uh, were not as cost effective as they wanted it to be. I'm blaming that budget overage on the fact that they made them have all those scenes with the actual leopard. Mm-hmm. I- I'm putting yeah. it on. I'm putting it on them. Yeah, because so. there's a couple insert shots of the leopard where I'm like, this doesn't really seem like it belongs in here, and we're like, oh, we just have to see the cat to make sure it's here. <laughs> yeah, I think that. Whole, I mean, I'm sure. I, I, I think we're gonna get to it, but like that whole scene that happens with Alice and Oliver at their work i think that there Mm -hmm. was never meant to be any actual leopard yeah that definitely feels like they got a note that said we need to see more leopard can you please insert (laughs) it later exactly also are we saying panther or are we saying leopard oh do we keep saying leopard it was a it was a panther (laughs) wait okay okay, wait is it like a square rectangle situation though where like all panthers are leopards but not all leopards are panthers yes Okay, yeah. Or, well, what was Orphan first kill? All macaws are parrots, but not all parrots are fucking macaws. <laughs> uh, anyway, pick whatever you want. Say whatever you want. I won't stop you. I looked it up. A panther is a version of a leopard. Yeah. Got it. Yeah, but the leopards that are not black are not panthers. Right. Right. Okay. We spent a lot of time figuring this out, but yes, pan- <laughs> pan- panther, panther, panther. Excellent it's an educational research. podcast. <laughs> well, so prior to Cat People's official release, uh, the higher up executives at RKO saw the film at a studio projection room and expressed disapproval. So early test screenings took place in October at the uh, RKO Hill Street Theater, a testing site for sneak previews with the cast and crew in attendance. And apparently the film opened up with a Disney cartoon about a kitten, which led to the audience oh um, literally catcalling and meowing during the film. Wow, good to see that audiences were still shit in 1940. <laughs> <laughs> But apparently, as the story progressed, the audience did calm and become more involved with the film. Unfortunately, they didn't really have much time to tinker with it if the studio wanted anything to happen, because by late October of 42, Luton and Turner were already shooting their next film together. Um, As Joe mentioned, I Walked with a Zombie. Yes. So Cat People had its world premiere at the Rialto Theater in Manhattan on December 5th, 1942, and was released regionally the following day in New York City. It was popular for its first two weeks at the Rialto, where it took in about $17,000. For comparison, The Wolfman grossed about $19,500 in the same theater the previous December. So, they're holding up pretty well against Universal Monsters. Comparable, yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Got a wide release on December 25th, so Christmas Day in 1942, where it was distributed by, again, RKO Radio Pictures. It broke the attendance record for the Hawaii Theater in Los Angeles and was reissued theatrically about 10 years later in 1952. I love that idea. So rarely do we get reissues of things nowadays unless it's, you know... Avatar. Avatar, yeah, it's like a Spielberg movie or something like that. Can you imagine them just being like, hey, for one weekend only, we're going to re-release Hereditary into theaters. It's like, oh, shit, okay. It really fucks with me when I go to Box Office Mojo and I, you know, I look at the total and then I'm like, oh, god damn it. There was a fucking re-release that's contributing this goddamn Box Office total. 
<laughs> the, the film's box office receipts are disputed. Um, film historians have estimated that the box office take for Cat People is four million domestically and four million in foreign markets. Um, Variety estimates its rentals in 1943 as 1.2 million, whereas RKO files report that domestic rentals were about three hundred and sixty thousand dollars, and foreign rentals were one hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars. All this to say, no one agrees on how much how I mean, much money this movie made. That's a crazy spread. I mean, that's yes. like a, yeah. Like you said, eight million to what something like five hundred thousand. Like yes, exactly, exactly. But so it's important to note that the rentals are not equivalent to gross revenue. And assuming right. that the revenue was split evenly between theaters and the studio, the film grossed over a million dollars. Nevertheless, however much money it did make, it was still considered excellent business. Hmm. Which is the most important thing, because it's part of why this movie ended up gaining a legacy. Not because it's a great fucking movie, but because it was a big hit. And that's important for Luton's career. Yeah, which, I mean, yeah, this being the first of those ten films he would do at RKO. Um, but unfortunately, the, while the money was good, the reviews were mixed. So, like, New York Times, New York Herald, uh, The Tribune, New York Sunday News, they all were like, thumbs down, this is not a good movie. Um, <sighs> we had critics saying that it was trying too hard to be a melodrama. Oh, sorry, it was trying to be a melodrama, but it doesn't try hard enough. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> a labored and obvious attempt to induce shock, and its themes are explored at tedious and graphically unproductive length. It's like 73 minutes. What like, what are you even talking about? It's a bee picture. Get fucked. <laughs> oh my and god. It's 1942. Like what else do they have going on? What is exciting to them? I don't know. Is it just is it reassuring or horrible? Just really people are just always assholes. <laughs> right. <laughs> Funnily enough, though, so while the New York reviews were really mixed, it actually got better reviews once it opened in L.A. So Variety had said, you know, oh, the film relies upon developments of surprises confined to psychology and mental reaction rather than transformation to grotesque and marauding characters for visual impact on the audience. Um, we have grim and unrelenting, a dose of horror best suited to addicts past the curable stage, which um, I don't know um, what that means. <laughs> I, I don't love that language. <laughs> um, potent. Oh, well, here's another one. Potent stuff straight from the psychopathic clinic. Hmm. Okay. A fantastic story, reasonably produced and directed. Reasonably, <laughs> wow. Reasonably well, produced and directed. <laughs> I just. Uh, that's all. Good I could job. Do. <laughs> you you cleared a bar and it was low, and we're gonna celebrate you for that. It's a reasonably sufficient <laughs> piece of art. <laughs> I'm gonna use that in my next review. <laughs> Slap it on the poster. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, retrospective reviews are obviously kinder to it. Um, it is on Roger Ebert's like, you know, list of great films. In 1993, the Library of Congress selected Cat People for preservation in the National Film Registry for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. In terms of legacy, I mean, we do have a sequel that came two years later called The Curse of the Cat People. Uh, I did not watch this, but by all accounts, it's almost like a children's fairy tale. Yeah. It's a fantasy ghost story kind of right it's, it's really good you should watch it it really it's a really it's di it's very different in a lot of yes. ways but it has um it's its own movie it just happens mm -hmm. to be i'm not gonna say too much just you should you should watch it <laughs> yeah. it's, it's not long none of these movies I mean, are long it's robert weiss directing it so i mean that that's perking my ears up right there yeah, just don't go into it being like oh this is directly going to follow cat people because it it has some linkages but it also is a very different movie got it and it is very queer too it's a it's mm -hmm. very very easy to 
deeply read the queer subtext of Curse of the Cat People. Well, um, and then uh, the other connection is, of course, uh, Dr. Judd makes a return appearance and the seventh mm-hmm. victim, which we did discuss. I remember discussing that on that episode, which, again, is funny considering, um, spoiler alert, he dies in this movie. But <laughs> mm-hmm. Makes no sense. <laughs> <laughs> and then finally, uh, before I pass the torch off to you, Joe, uh, we did have a remake of this film in 1982, directed by Paul Schrader, starring Natasha Kinski. Um, I did watch this. I double featured the original and this film. And that was... um. An experience, mm. I will tell you that. <laughs> Tonal whiplash. Heather, I'm going to go out on a limb, much like a panther, and <laughs> assume that you have seen the, the remake? Yeah, I just rewatched it, actually, for the project I'm doing where I'm watching like all of the favorites. Mm. Nice. So I thought, well, this will be nice just to kind of remind myself. And mm-hmm. <laughs> I, was, I was sad to be reminded. Yeah, I know that movie has its defenders, and it's probably not fair to judge it by comparison but on this criterion blue they actually have a feature at about you know the cinematography comparison because they interview the guy who did it for the schrader film and he's like yeah you know we really wanted to try to do our own spin and i think we really accomplished like a nostalgic evocation of the original and they were showing clips and i was like you've got a nut fucking o'toole's tits out in the pool <laughs> sequence this is heresy to, to, to be yeah. fair because i did watch this too he does say that they, they didn't they tried to shoot the pool scene exactly like the original because they didn't think they could do it any better except for no tits. no no <laughs> he doesn't say that trace he says they filmed it in the same way but then they used new technology so they could get the camera out over the pool which they right. couldn't do in the original right they have the crane shot but uh, yeah. generally they didn't try to alter it too much outside of that fact whereas like with the uh the stalking scene they do change a lot mm-hmm. I, I think what it for me what it boils down to is that in the original in the 42 version there is an agency and kind of queer feminist power to the story of the origin story of the cat people Mm -hmm. you know they were the most powerful and evil witches who you know escaped into the mountains right Mm -hmm. right whereas in just like literally the opening scene of the first one it's like kind of sexually sacrificing young women to panthers right Mm -hmm. so there's an agency to the first one that's completely lacking in the second one and that probably could be analyzed in the role of women in society and like you know maybe in the 40s they felt much more secure in the you know cis hetero patriarchy to mm-hmm. have there be kind of play whereas in the 80s they were like kind of starting to freak out like oh <laughs> we've just had a decade of women's liberation <laughs> exactly. we're terrified of women again <laughs> but it's like because we, we, we lose out on a lot of the queer subtext in the remake but we insert um, a new character played by malcolm mcdowell and then we put incest in there instead Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I mean, I think I literally wrote in my post about it because I like will write about just my reactions to these films. And I try not to be a dick. I mean, I'm, I really tr- <laughs> I try to remember that these are some ones like they are right. a horror loving queers favorite film, like top five favorite horror film. So, right. But then I just watch some of them and I'm like, oh, come on, man. So for, for this <laughs> what are you one. thinking with this? Yeah, with this one, I was like, so you just made it super incesty and like mm-hmm. cis heteronormative? Like, no, you missed the, you missed like 
everything that was important about the first one. I, I will say this. So I, I, I was never bored watching this remake. And while mm-hmm. I, I don't really like, I'm not going to jump at the chance to watch it again anytime soon. I was actually more fascinated with it more than I was like enjoying it. So like I, I was just fascinated by every choice being made and it is stylish. Um, It's right. just like, it's very long <laughs> and it's kind of, it feels a little bit emotionally hollow to me because they're going for a lot of shock factor, especially in the last act of that film. Right. Yeah. I mean, even just the description of like Malcolm McDowell scenery chewing and lots of nudity and incest. I'm like, okay, this just honestly sounds like a horror movie in the 80s, right? It's what we were doing. It's a product of its time, much like this 42 film is a product of its time. It just feels like one of those, you know, when we bemoan a remake because it loses something that's essential to the original, like Mm -hmm. you, you did it. But you also seem to lose what made the original so special. But at the same time, though, it's not it's not a carbon copy remake. So like th- those I-, I get what you both of you are saying. It didn't bother me as much because the film is so different from this right. one that I was kind of like, OK, I'll I'll let this slide a bit, even though, yeah, I, I can see yeah, why you would want it to be a bit more similar, at least with the themes that we're dealing with here. But I just anyway. don't want it to be like as misogynistic as it is. I mean, that's kind of what it kind of boils down to me. It's like mm. like just think of the actual very endings of both films and yeah yeah well yeah well heather you're just asking for too much now come (laughs) on i actually know when we talk about oliver in this film i want to compare him to oliver in that remake because on reviewing i was like oh good for they they made oliver so much better in the remake but then like thinking about Mm. it i was like wait Hmm. He he has the love of his life in a cage in a zoo. Exactly. Like he's a tall piece of shit. At least the, like like the Oliver Reed in the first one, just like a milk toast bud. Like you're just like yeah. The second one, I, yeah. I, I, know, I, I, I know this is like not the like road we're gonna go. We're supposed to be going down, but like when I rewatched it, my memories before I had seen, it, I hadn't seen it probably. T- for almost 40 years. Like that's how long it had been since I'd seen it. Wow. And I I had really warm memories of it. And I, th- oh. I think it was honestly because I was watching, r- I was really, really young and I was watching mm-hmm. n- naked Natasha Kinski. Like, yeah. I mean. <laughs> yeah, you get full I mean, blush in that movie. Yeah. Blinded by the beauty. <laughs> I, I was, I think. And then I watch it this time and I'm like, well, what the fuck? And like, you know, <laughs> if I weren't so lazy, I'd just write a book about the fact like, <laughs> just a, what what did all these films that I watched that I loved that actually kind of hated me? What did it do to me? <laughs> like it, mm, yeah. It's it's a little bit rough. That that could be a dangerous book to write, but It'd be an interesting book. Sounds interesting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, like your experience does sound distinctly gendered, but I would also argue there's probably a pullback version of that where we as queers could talk about like what is all the the extreme homophobia of a certain generation of horror films? Like, what did that do to us? And how did that kind of fuck us up, too? Well, that's why I'm excited to talk about this film, then, and how we are going to make the reads on everything going on in this film. Because I was going back and forth with, oh, look, this is actually a really interesting positive portrayal. Oh, I don't know if I like the way this is turning, because I feel mm-hmm. like... But again, it's a, it's also written by a queer man, and we've got Val Luton here with this old big old lesbian aunt like guiding his path. So. Right. <laughs> also, I'm going to give that segue an A. <laughs> <laughs> Take us away, Joe. What's this about? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we open with a presumably fictitious quote by Dr. Judd, who was played by Tom Conway. I have help for you. Um, so yes, this is credited to Dr. Lewis Judd, but the script... 
credits this quote to Dr. Sigmund Freud. Okay. Yeah. I mean, folks, we are going to get into the rabbit hole of psychoanalysis. I do believe we talked about it on The Seventh Victim as well, because it is in there. It was very popular. It's important to remember that in the 40s, therapy and psychologists were kind of the new thing and people were excited and trepidatious, but it was very much part of the cultural consciousness. So that's why you're seeing it a lot in movies of this time. Yeah. Okay. So the quote is, Even as the fog continues to lie in the valleys, so does ancient sin cling to the low places, the depressions in the world consciousness. What do we think about starting a very brief movie with such a deep quote? Um, I don't even I don't know what this is saying. I'm not going to lie to you. I have no idea what this means. (laughs) Well, I think it's I think it's Luton's influence. He was a very book learned man. He liked to think deeply about things. He was incredibly well read. He came from a very intellectual family. So I think Mm -hmm. that for him, yeah, because it ends also with a... Another quote. Yeah. Another quote from, God, who is it? It's someone... Uh, John Donne from the Holy Sonnets. There we go. Oh, yeah, which is like, what is this, like some fucking like 16th century poet like (laughs) yeah and and that quote but black sin hath betrayed to endless night my world both parts and both parts must die i preferred the latter and maybe it's just because it's less made up i guess (laughs) that one to me feels poetic this one is very much a mood setter like I think it does connote, okay, you're in for more of an intellectual psychological ride. Like it's very much priming the audience. This isn't going to be cheap exploitation scares. Right. And yet at the same time, I do think it's just a little too opaque to mean anything to start a movie off. I mean, okay. Even as fog continues to lie in the valleys, so does ancient sin cling to the low places. What are the low places? Queerness. (laughs) (laughs) the depressions in the world consciousness okay so yeah so we're saying queerness or any otherness really yeah i mean it's any otherness because like let's just kind of like so narrative yeah Yeah, like narratively (laughs) we're talking about a serbian immigrant right Mm -hmm. but behind the scenes we're talking about a french actress a russian-born producer a french director who else? Who else is the immigrants on the film? Like, there's a lot of people who came in, and the United States has a very. I mean, United States is literally founded on yep. terrible, terrible things. So yeah. there's just a xenophobia. So I do believe that the otherness can play into lots of different marginalizations. But I think this really is this poetic suggestiveness out the gate. I do believe is about queerness based on um, Dewitt. Well, I think, too, I mean, the word sin is kind of like a ding, 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 ding bell right there, right? Yeah. Also, uh, cinematographer Nicholas Musuraka. uh, Oh, yeah, Italian. Exactly. There we go. Okay, so after we get this, yes, uh, slightly confounding, but apt uh, opening quote, we start off at the Central Park Zoo. And we have Irina Dubrovna, who is played, as we've said, by Simone Simone. And... We've been saying Simone Simone. Is it Simone Simon? So I was saying that, but in the Criterion Blue, anytime she was referenced, they were saying Simone Simone. And maybe it's because Simon is Simone in French? Yeah, it's like Simone Simone. 
Yeah. It's, there's like a, there's a slight difference between the two. <laughs> that sounds ridiculous. Okay. <laughs> Simone, 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 Simone. <laughs> like Simone, Simone. <laughs> I love it. And I'm never going to say her name again. So... <laughs> So Arena is at the zoo. She's looking at the panther cage and she is drawing, but she's not having a great time of it. She keeps throwing the drawings away and her frustration attracts the attention of Oliver Reed, who is played by Kent Smith, who is a walking cardboard of an attractive white man. <laughs> also, he's flirting with her with trash. <laughs> I mean, honestly, you gotta kind of respect the guy's game because he basically says, look at this tr attractive lady. My way in is to basically say, hey, what's on the sketch pad? And it sort of works for him. It was so because I, I didn't know the plot of this movie going into it. I didn't know where we were going. And so I was kind of like, oh, like this guy seems pretty nice. And just as the movie continued, I got angrier and angrier and angrier <laughs> to the point where too when, when he says he's gonna divorce her i was like she literally fucking told you on day one yes. i can't do this mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> fucking idiot i i do love that right from the beginning she has agency like he's trying to get with her and she says, no, I'm not going to show you the sketch pad. She does reveal details about herself and she's willing to go along with it. But like she isn't really interested in his romantic overtures. Like she lays it down very clearly. She's not exactly new, but like she doesn't have any friends in town and she's interested in him as a friend. Yeah, she basically says, I don't want to fuck you. I will not fuck you. And he's like, you're such a silly woman. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> I'm going to marry you. <laughs> Tomorrow. <laughs> but the time lapses in this movie are occasionally perplexing. Yes. Like, I, I think it actually contributes to the mystery of the film. Like, it feels like you are caught up in this whirlwind romance. And then you're, it makes all the more sense why she keeps getting frustrated with herself that she can't commit to this guy sexually because you're like well is it maybe because you've only known him for a couple of days well that's just the movies i mean that's whatever but like <laughs> it's just uh, yeah it, it, it is bizarre it is bizarre so she doesn't invite him into her apartment it is filled with cats so the original cat lady <laughs> and she then proceeds to tell him the story of King John of Serbia. And basically, we get a, a slightly lengthened version of what you've already talked about, Heather, which is that the Christians in her town turned to witchcraft and Satan worshiping. And then King John came in uh, and basically executed most of them. But the powerful ones, the smartest ones, escaped into the mountain. And we more or less get this curse that... If the women of this town become sexually aroused, then they are likely to kill their lovers. Yes. And I'm sorry, maybe because I'm blending the two probably, but it's only it's only the remake that offers a way out of it, right? Because yes. basically once you turn into a cat, you just are a cat. That's the new one. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Got it. But no, in both in both versions, you can go back and forth well okay i'm sorry because in the remake you have to have sex with your brother i'm sorry you have to kill oh you have to kill someone sorry <laughs> you, have oh. to ki you have to kill someone to get back into your <laughs> human form it's but, but to not turn into a panther uh when you're fucking you have to have sex with your sibling <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> in, in this one there is no out like there is no way to not turn into a panther after fucking it's basically celibacy or bust yeah exactly yeah 
So um, I'm going to bring in my my one and only reference for this episode. It's by Elizabeth Irwin in a piece called Cat People, 1942, Coding Lesbianism via Otherness. And this is for Horror Homeroom. And Elizabeth says, Arena's story of her village being overrun by wicked people who did dreadful things <laughs> echoes the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, Given man. the specific references to religion throughout the film, this association is not accidental and helps to contextualize for the audience the perverse nature of the sexuality with which Arena struggles. I mean, that's the whole thing is I'm watching this and I'm like, okay, cool. So I'm watching her as a lesbian. She cannot have sex because it is societally... Um, uh, bad like p- people don't want to see that they don't want her to do it it's like you know immoral and so she's just sitting there like watching all these cats which are uh, almost like a gay a gay a queer person watching porn i guess like i can't have it because i can't because society says no but i'll watch this porn to like get my rocks off instead wait 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 i i need you to say that in a different way I, <laughs> what are you saying <laughs> so, I, I think trace is confused yeah Trace, I think she's looking at the Panthers like, oh, shit, this is what I could become. Like, there's a beauty and a grace to it. And sure, it could be seen as representing lesbianism. But I think she's more saying like, this is the danger, right? Like, this is what otherness embodied looks like. Because if I if I actually succumb to my actual desires, I risk becoming this thing in the cage. Yeah, sure. That 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 that, that sounds right. <laughs> she's not getting turned on by the Panthers. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I didn't mean it as an as like as an arousing thing. I meant it more as a thing where it's like I can't be that. I can't be that. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I always took it as she was. She has a primal draw to them. Like when she has that whole scene where she's like, "I couldn't not go." Right? Yeah. There's like an mm-hmm. actual primal draw to this. We'll call it a metaphysical connection to the big to the big cats right so Mm -hmm. and i just want like the whole movie starts like there's a whole foreshadowing when like when their whole like little meet cute happens the sketch on her pad is how the whole film ends which i think is a Uh, lovely touch Mm -hmm. yeah and of course that's also represented in the statue that she has of king john in her apartment like so she's she's almost surrounded herself by this imagery that is kind of like, you can't succumb to this because this is what your life will become. Like that path, that queer path only leads to death. So she has yes. constant reminders of it around her to be just in case she's tempted to be like, no, 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 there's a cat. I might be a cat. Yeah. I mean, she it's like her like if we're just going to read it just as queerness because she is obsessed by the fear of mm-hmm. the quote unquote evil inside her. Right, right. To the point that she doesn't live her authentic life. She's exactly. just living this lie where she can't actually even experience the things that she should be able to experience because she's so afraid of it. Yes. Mm. And then and then when she, when she I, like, like we were talking about, when there's this time collapse and she's weirdly, all of a sudden they're married, the, mm-hmm. whole, the whole point is that she has these heteronormative failings. That's right. the premise of the whole thing. So, yeah. I love that. Yeah, so at this point, she's basically said, you know, like, oh, I'm really excited to finally have a friend here, and here's this story, and he just listens to her, <laughs> and more or less, like, the, the modern-day equivalency of says, like, cool, I gotta go, but this was great, you're hot, let's do it again. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, you're not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> he just he does not hear her throughout this entire movie. And through a contemporary lens, it is maddening. Oh, in my notes, it's I think it's because I, I, when does he start to believe is it when they get attacked in the office? I wrote in my notes. I was yes. like, oh, now he believes she's a fucking cat. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. he was endangered. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, the men do not come off well on this story. No. no. <laughs> That's right, Kev's like, well, what are the other ones? The other ones are rapists. <laughs> oh, exactly. my God. I, I have some hot fucking takes that I saw on the internet when oh, we get there. Oh, 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 yes, oh, yes, no. yes. Yeah. Okay, so we follow Oliver to work. He works um, as a draftsman for, like, like a boat building place. Yeah. It, I was like, 1940s job. Okay. And we immediately meet his office co-worker, Alice Moore, who is played by Jane Randolph. And I'm fascinated by not the relationship that Alice has with Oliver, but rather the way that Alice evolves throughout this movie. Because it would be so easy to turn her into a predatory girl-on-girl bitch, where she's just like, oh, I've always loved him and, you know, this arena bitch. But early on... I think that Alice is a truly supportive friend to Oliver. Yeah. I mean, I know people like, I mean, I've seen this movie a number of times over the years and I've had people be like, well, I hate Alice. I'm like, actually, I really love Alice. I love Alice. I really love Alice. <laughs> Bitch has like, got an A plus hat game. Oh <laughs> and uh, uh, just like something else you had just said about the fact that we watch, you know, we're watching all of these draftsmen in this like cargo ship building company, right? Mm-hmm. I think think it's interesting just to point it out because it was a way that helped, you know, they had these constraints on their budget, but they took something, universal horror always exists in mostly a faraway gothic place that feels unknowable. Mm -hmm. And this would have felt very knowable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's so modern and contemporary. Like it feels vibrant in a way that the universal films feel like very exotic. Yes, yes. With Alice specifically, I mean, look, the the scene where I was about to turn on her is, of course, the one where she tells Oliver, you know, like, oh, uh, I love you. I'm Mm -hmm. like, choose me, marry me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But but given everything that happens afterwards, I mean, there's even a part where she says, like, I think you should go, like, look after your wife. Mm -hmm. So her confession to him felt less diabolically scheming and more like I'm an adult telling you how I feel. Yeah, it it felt very genuine, sincere. Yeah. Yeah. And in a way that it's like, I've got to tell you this thing because to not do so wouldn't be authentic to me. But I don't even get the impression that she really wants him to choose her. It's just more, I had to say this so that you would know. Yeah. Yeah. I just think of it as... I mean, I've already called him milk toast once, but (laughs) Oliver just... (laughs) He, he really gets me. So Oh, he's not doing it for anybody. Yeah, but he's yeah, he's got his abnormal queer woman, you know, over here, and then he has Alice, the normal woman. So they just kind of seem like a well, kind of boring, safe heterosexual pairing. See though, will we call Alice a normal woman? Because again, she's holding like a man a quote unquote a man's position in this office. And it's really Arena playing sex games with her for the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. It it is. I've I've seen her described as like a modern woman, but also 
this is where, unfortunately, I think we're lacking a little bit of context because we don't know exactly what her gig is. Yeah. But I think she's an assistant to the draftsman. That's why he's reading out the numbers to her and she's documenting. But it's still a rank above secretary. It is. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and, and as you said, Heather, I think even the hat game to me connotes that she has a certain <laughs> amount of like wealth and privilege. Yeah. I, I think that, I mean, let's just be real. Oliver does not deserve either of them. Either of them. No, no. no God, no. Yeah. I mean, o- o- Oliver is the worst. Like, I, it's been a while <laughs> since I've seen a male character in a film that I despise this much that I'm supposed to root for, I think. Uh, yeah. I'm going to put it out there. I remember you having absolute hatred and vitriol for Dracula's daughter, the dude in that one. Oh, yeah. But again, <laughs> yeah, that yeah, was like yeah. two years ago. <laughs> <laughs> But I'm just like, it's, yeah, I'm just going to say two like kind of classic horror films with mm-hmm. lesbian subtext where the yes. men are all douches. Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And terrible therapists. Oh, my God. Dear Lord. And all these men are complaining today like, oh, like, of course, the man's evil. Like, look, go back to the 40s. <laughs> it's, it's, it's been going on. <laughs> Newsflash. Men have always been terrible. <laughs> <laughs> So Oliver has decided in his infinite wisdom, he met Arena at the big cat section of the zoo. So he's going to buy her a kitten because she must love cats. Also, don't gift living things to people that you just met. (laughs) It's so weird to see a kitten in a box. I was like, oh, are we going to Schrodinger this? Oh, my God. The joke would work better if I could pronounce the name correctly. But part of me was like, oh, there's another cut of this film where that kitten's already dead. Well, he I, there's holes in the box, but he he constantly like the cat keeps pushing the lid up and he keeps pushing the lid down. I was like, dude, that cat <laughs> does not want to be in that box. <laughs> I mean, it is a living thing. Yeah. Yeah. So he gives it to her, and it does not go over well. Cats do not like her. So she suggests taking it back to the pet store. They go inside, and we get this psychic connection that all of the animals feel. So it's actually not just cats. It's pretty much all animals do not like Arena. Yeah, all the fucking monkeys. Like, what? They could just buy monkeys in the 40s? Why why do we think (laughs) the cats don't like Arena? I like to think of it as she's a predator and all of the animals can sense it. Like she's at the top of the food chain. Yeah. I mean, she's a big cat. Those are little kittens. I mean, the monkeys would be, you know, yeah, they would be prey Prey, in the, in the jungle and the birds. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what we see is monkeys, cats and birds Birds, for the most part. But then the panther in the zoo is like, you're fine. Well, I think the panther's like, I respect you. Don't trust you. (laughs) (laughs) give me a chance i'll claw your face off in the climax of this movie so arena ends up staying outside as we get this sort of like busybody sequence and then we we hear this ominous thing of you can't fool a cat so the the idea that you can trust all of the cats throughout this movie because they will tell it to you straight (laughs) straight straight All right, so uh, this is where we get a weird time ellipsis. Like, we we presume it's the same day, and yet when Oliver awakens on Arena's couch, he basically confesses that he loves her, and she 
has to defend herself why they haven't been intimate. So at this point, it's just kissing, but he's like, you know, how come we haven't done that? Well, this is the jarring thing, right? She says, you know, like she she never wanted to love him. Uh, mm-hmm. She stayed away from people. She lived alone. She isolated herself so she wouldn't give in to these temptations to turn her into a yep. camp person. And he's like, no, you silly woman. And then we literally cut to the next scene and it's their mm-hmm. wedding dinner. Yep. <laughs> it is abrupt we have a 73 minute runtime and we have got to move i, just, I was so confused <laughs> i feel like in a in a more contemporary text they would have been like four months later or something like that like we would have gotten a title card maybe or like a smash cut we need a smash cut to make it like a joke right it's all luton's poetry it's like you just kind of <laughs> let it wash over you <laughs> Well, I do kind of love it, though, because it it says, you know, you'll figure it out as we proceed through this next scene, which is set in the Serbian restaurant. And yeah, they they've now already been married. This is the wedding party that's kind of celebrating the marriage. We very quickly understand what's happening. So it's not as though it's confusing. It's just it takes us that extra beat because we haven't been force fed the information. Right. Yes. So at this wedding party, there are whispers about Arena's frigidity. And Alice is like on top of it. She's shutting that shit down. No, Arena's a good woman. This is a great fit. They're a good match. Yep. Enter a well-dressed woman with feline features who is played by Elizabeth Russell, but voiced by Simone. Man, this is Miranda Richardson traveling back in time, and she's clearly lived 100 years. <laughs> <laughs> this woman is stunningly gorgeous. I love the fact that she basically gets one line, which translates to sister? Yeah, my sis- my sister. Yeah, Moya mm-hmm. Sestra. And then she is out of the movie, but uh, if you read the Criterion notes for the disc, it basically says, this is the moment where the movie shifts. Like, the power of just this one character in this one sequence with this one line upends the entire film because suddenly you realize there are more than one of them, and Arena's not making this shit up. Like, she's not delusional. This is the proof. Yeah, and I I will say again, not knowing anything about the plot of this movie, I actually thought we were not going to have actual cat creatures in this movie. So mm-hmm. I was actually quite surprised that um that we do get cat creatures in this movie. But yeah, this uh this woman is again her what two seconds of screen time is such an imposing figure. I mean, mm-hmm. she owned those seconds on screen. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, just a weird fun, weird fun fact. She I think she's married. She was married to Rosalind Russell's brother. That's oh, really? why. That's why her name's Elizabeth Russell. Right. Uh, yes, of course. I mean, and Rosalind's amazing. Mm-hmm. That's all. <laughs> I, that, that has nothing to do with anything. But... <laughs> it's your fun fact. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, after this encounter, this this is very much upsets Arena to the point that she literally crosses herself at the table, and then when they go home, she takes a bath, and you can tell she's trying to like wash the sin wash the association of this woman off of her and meanwhile oliver's cracking jokes like oh we're still talking about cat people are we go to hell oliver (laughs) this and this is actually interesting right because this is their wedding night and Mm -hmm. i mean she basically tells him she's like you know i want to be mr mrs reed i want to be everything that it means to me but i can't and i'm Mm -hmm. like why why don't you fucking marry him then but yeah they 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 end their wedding night in separate bedrooms (laughs) yeah it is rough because part of this you feel like well arena why did you 
do this, but if you understand the societal pressures that we put on people to have marriages, children, have a normal, happy life, and Arena has struggled with this, right? Like, she's isolated herself. She's surrounded herself with basically figures foretelling her death. I get that she might have said, you know what, this man loves me, I'm willing to make a go of it, and I've been honest with him. I don't think it excuses her, but I think it's understandable. Yeah, I think it's just what you, just what you said. It's like she is trying to suppress and repress that desire yes. she has. And that, and that's the whole thing. I I think of that scene with Elizabeth Russell in the Serbian restaurant as sexually charged and that's yes. why she has to get home and mm-hmm. get get those dirty uh, thoughts cuz like i yeah. mean <laughs> that one look i mean come on yeah <laughs> and the way yeah. she slinks out of the restaurant too like just brilliant and so yeah. in a way then oliver is her beard yes it yeah, was like yeah exactly yeah which which i'm just going to keep bringing back uh, nazimova here go ahead mm-hmm. she had a lavender marriage that probably luton would have known about yeah right yeah i mean and and it was kind of common i mean not like oh everybody was doing it but there were a (laughs) bunch of stars that we have either assumed or you know we've seen biographies of and it's like yeah we we had a lot of those kinds of marriages because it was a way for people to still do work but be able to do the things that they needed to do sort of out in the open because they could always just point to the beard and say like, no, I've got this guy or I've got this lady. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, that was, I mean, let's be real. It happens to this day. There are it does. Closet, oh, yeah. closeted actors who still do mm-hmm. lavender marriages. But lavender marriages, is it specifically a gay man and a lesbian woman or is it just any queer person with a beard? I think mm-hmm. of the lavender marriages as usually two queers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Coming together to kind of stay, yeah, yeah, Yeah. have some safety. I mean, kind of going back to the queerness, like right at the very, very beginning of the film, Irena says, I like the dark, it's friendly. And that's Mm -hmm. one of those first moments when we think about how queerness does, it has historically lived in the shadows. Right. Mm. Even all the way thinking about just cruising, you go. Well, and uh, shadows, there are a plenty in this movie. Yes. Well, I mean, that's the other funny thing. Like, I look at this movie as something of a tragedy, Mm -hmm. but you can also very easily look at this movie as a film noir. Like, it is bathed in shadows. And of course, Turner would go on to direct Out of the Past, which is like a classic of the subgenre of film noir. I'm so glad that you said you view this film as a tragedy, and maybe we can wait till the end to get to it. But like, I don't know if the film views itself as a tragedy. Really? Yeah, I think it. I think her death scene alone, the way it's presented, you have to remove Oliver and Alice out of that because it almost becomes a farce to the point where you're just like, oh my god, heteros, get out of here. I think that's why, though, I, 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 we end, I mean, yes, I get that, but we also end with the hetero couple going off to live life, I guess, wherever they're well, going. definitely watch the sequel (laughs) definitely watch that so you can kind of see what (laughs) (laughs) exactly um and i think that there's a whole thing where it's like Irena's the hero of the story she's like the most nuanced she has like right 
but I guess what I'm thinking, so hey, in this time period, right, you couldn't have an immoral villain be the hero of the film. And in this film, we have Arena who is stalking and trying to attack Alice. So I just mm-hmm. don't think, maybe, maybe the film knows it, but I feel like when they were submitting, like, they had to make it be like, well, no, we have to make it to be like Arena's the monster, the villain, because we can't have her be the hero of the film since she's trying to kill the the female co-lead of this film, you know? Well, I guess what we should have done is like actually read some contemporary reviews of seeing if we can find anything in the archives of how right. people actually reacted. But I think she is the hero of the film, but Agreed. she must be destroyed. And that's yes. why she is destroyed. And that is what the Hayes Code would mm-hmm. have demanded. But the Hayes Code, like they're such dumb dumbs, like cishet white guys. They didn't even realize that this was that she's just, the hero. Yeah, they yeah. wouldn't have realized she was the hero and they wouldn't have realized it was queer. And I think that's the thing. I mean, because again, I, I, I also view her as the hero, but I don't know if that's because I live in the year 2022 and I'm watching this like, well, yeah, she's clearly the hero of this film. Mm-hmm. Well, I will say this. I don't know where I came across this but I did come across it somewhere. DeWitt Bodine talked about how they received letters, you know, RKO oh, really? received received letters with people writing in and saying, thank you so much for putting a lesbian on screen. Like kind of like how brave oh. of you. Yeah. So DeWitt Bodine is a really interesting character because he became one of the earliest historians of Hollywood and wrote a lot about queer Hollywood. So. Right. God, that's amazing. Can you imagine how important that would have been for queer women of this time to go and be like, I see myself wholly in this character. Yeah, no, it like literally makes me feel verklempt. Yeah, <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> uh, yeah no, really, really kind of gets to me. Like when I really think about queers through history, it's like I feel um, it feels heavy. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of joy, but there's a lot of heaviness. And it's just thinking about how 1942 feels far away, but really it's not that far away. Right. The progress is not quite as far as I would have hoped. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're talking like 80 years ago here, folks. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So in the snow outside, uh, Arena does dance around this haze code where she basically says like she wants to fuck. Like she's, she thinks she's ready to fuck. But yeah, when they get inside, as you said, Trace, they do end up spending the wedding night on the opposite side of the door. Mm-hmm. And it's... It's sad. It's unfortunate. I do love, though, that you can hear the panther growling yes. in the background mm-hmm. of all of this. Like, it's like it's taunting her. Mm-hmm. It's great. It's it's such a fantastic little detail. Mm-hmm. So Arena goes to the zoo to talk to the zookeeper, Alec Craig, and... You know, he he gives her this line about how the panther is the worst beast in the Bible. And then he's like, also, happy marriage. Okay. <laughs> You've been married one month. So here's the, I actually, I actually pinged this line he gives her because, yeah, he says, you know, the panther is an evil creature. And she goes, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, the book of Revelation says, and the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard. And then he goes, like a leopard, but not a leopard. I guess this fits this feller. And I'm like, okay, so it's not a leopard. But you were just saying, well, the leopard is evil because the Bible says this thing that is like a leopard is evil. <laughs> Which is not unlike how we just have to put, like, this uh, uh, evil cross on things we don't understand. Like queer mm-hmm. people in the Bible. Yeah. Sorry, that, that took a moment to kind of, like, sink in a little bit. Basically, I guess what I'm trying to say is the Book of Revelations is saying that this beast looks like a leopard. And so therefore, this man says, well, leopards must be evil, even Mm -hmm. though the Bible is not saying leopards are evil. Yeah. So if we extrapolate by that virtue, it's like we've labeled queerness as an evil, but 
really that's not even in the text and or that's just something that we've kind of made up and slapped onto people yeah i mean look there's a handful the the one line in leviticus you know is like man shall not lie with man else blah 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 but again it's like the thing where it's like okay well so we're picking this one line of text from the bible and then assigning like this entire like like a group of people and like condemning them for it and it's like yeah but you know there's a lot of other lines in the bible about other things that are very very sinful that we completely ignore yep we like to cherry pick we scare them (laughs) we really do we do it's it's because we offer uh you know i deeply believe queerness offers a way out of the shit that we live in, the way we've structured societies, there's something deeply embedded into our existence that shows there is another way to be, and it would be a much better way. And that's scary to the system. Boy, that is really transgressive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like it. There is so much power in that kind of sentiment. I believe it. I really do. I think I have to. I have to believe that because, I mean, <laughs> the shit that we have is not working, yeah. people. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm also in favor of like matrilineal societies because I think, oh, you know, and I'll just not climb on that soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> People have heard it before to the point where we've started to get reviews on the podcast where it's like, can Joe stop complaining about white men? It's like, I'll take that no. mantle for you today. I, I, I'll be the one. I'll be the man hating lesbian. <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> <laughs> it's a heavy cross, Heather. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'll make it a T-square. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> so Arena ends up running home to sketch, and then she's distracted by the canary that we exchanged the kitten for. And I love this. It actually reminded me a little bit of Batman Returns with Michelle Pfeiffer and the canary. But basically, she's cat-like. She plays with this bird, oh. and it is so scared that it dies. Actually, yes. that has to be an intentional homage on Burton's part, right? I think so. I wouldn't be surprised because we we know that Tim Burton is pretty media literate. Well, I mean, just because, you know, Batman Returns is like has noirish X aspects to it. And like, I, mm-hmm. I guess I wouldn't call this a noir, but like stylistically, it feels very noir. No, yeah. this movie's absolutely I, I, noir. I, I absolutely think it's a noir. Oh, okay. There I mean, noir specialists would have some issues, but there's... <laughs> well, they always do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, the lighting... The lighting alone in the stairwell when Dr. Judd goes back for his cane and like you see all of the shadows and yeah, it's yeah. definitely noir. I mean, yeah, exactly. The film is painted with light and it's all about the shadows. So I guess mm-hmm. I'm, I'm likening it to people like, you know, taking issue with people calling Suspiria a giallo, you know? Right. I mean, as always, if you can defend your argument, then you're good to go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, all these labels we make that what's like, ugh. I know. What does it matter? We're queer. What are labels? <laughs> exactly. Uh, so at this point, Oliver has had just about enough. His blue balls are starting to get to him. <laughs> so he decides that her belief in the curse is the problem. It, it's not anything else. It's just that he's got to cure her of these irrational ideas. So he elects for, I'm using air quotes here, an intelligent solution. <laughs> so he's inadvertently saying, oh, well, she's a dum-dum for believing in this stuff. It It's so funny because at first I was like, oh, good. Like, she's going to go talk to someone about this. And then I was like, oh, wait, but it's the sure. 40s. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she's lucky she doesn't get institutionalized yes! earlier. It's just floated as an idea later in the movie. But it's only because he wants to keep her around so we can fuck her. Oh, boy. I didn't even think about that. And that is so grim. <laughs> yes. He sucks. <laughs> yeah. 
So the man in question who sucks is, of course, Dr. <laughs> Judd. He is no better in this movie than he was in The Seventh Victim. <laughs> yeah, though. Yeah, no. I love him, though. He's a scoundrel. Like, he's kind of rootable in that way. I prefer him in The Seventh Victim because he's almost amusing, whereas here it feels like a prototype where they're playing with the idea of, well... I don't think this movie thinks that he's a bad therapist, but we would absolutely recognize him as that. I now. love whenever she's like, you know, they go through their session. She's like, what do I tell Oliver? He's like, well, what does one tell a husband? One tells nothing. him nothing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's already grooming her. <laughs> yeah. He's like, tell me all your secrets. Which she does. So we see that he puts her under hypnosis and she apparently tells him the whole thing. And uh, that's how we sort of get the back half of this curse. So that's why she's so hesitant about sex and sexuality, because she really just doesn't want to kill anyone. And that like little dream sequence is adorable. Right. Yeah. I mean, we've got some animated cats in yeah. there. Yeah. A swirl. Yeah. <laughs> I do love the way her face is lit, though, in the hypnosis sequence, because it's like it's just like a pitch black all around her, except just the light on her face. And it's so mm -hmm. striking. It's yeah. so gorgeous. I, It's one of the reasons I love black and white, and it seems dead obvious, but just the blacks in black and white films, especially ones that are leaning into noir, are so inky, and it looks like you could just kind of fall into them. So when we're talking about things like therapy and hypnosis, it's like, it's so visually spot on for what we're trying to connote. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I, I pulled this in the Criterion Blue, so this is not my personal observation, but like a lot of the lighting, the lights are on the ground as opposed to on the ceiling. So when mm -hmm. we walk into a room and we're used to like the top half of the room being bright and like we get darker as we go down to the floor, this is the opposite. So the lighting here is already disorienting us. Yeah. I feel like you can really, really see that in some of the later scenes as the shit starts to hit the fan. Yes, specifically a lot of the panther stalking sequences. Yeah, which is funny because it's also like a strategic way for them to, to hide, hide the panther. when the <laughs> panther is and is not on screen. <laughs> so Arena goes home and I have to feel like every woman in the audience watching this who has ever had to deal with a man just hisses at the screen because we discover that Oliver has been confiding in Alice and it was her who recommended Dr. Judd. Yeah. I mean, look, on a level, like, all he should have done <laughs> was tell her that Alice suggested the psychiatrist from the get-go. Right? Like... If if you're like, hey, she knows people, like, I'm going to get this recommendation from her. Unfortunately, it means I have to tell her your secret. Talk about it. But these people aren't talking to each other. I'm sorry. Oliver and Alice are talking to each other. No mm -hmm. one is talking to Arena. No. <laughs> Which just serves to isolate. And I mean, I'm I'm surprised that she doesn't become paranoid in the course of this film. Like, if anything, she becomes that wrathful queer vengeance, right? And it's in some ways very satisfying i just hate that she takes it out on alice and not oliver yes yes, yes. but i mean i think that's also a product of the 40s too yeah i don't think yeah. that she probably could have with the Hayes code mm -hmm. although i don't know well, i mean no because all the film maybe. noir maybe maybe if it was more film noir she would have i mean we were gonna kill her anyway so we could probably do whatever we wanted until the end yeah <laughs> yeah Oh, but you know, I think the problem is, is that you would lose that sexual charge between the two women and the obsession mm. with the woman. Right. So. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's very much, you know, oh, I'm going to go after the other woman. Like in my notes, I literally would capitalize other woman. But 
if you're reading this as, oh, Arena's trying not to act on her repressed queer sexuality, and yet she keeps following Alice into the pool and into dark spaces. Exactly. Hmm. So, because again, like this is a film like you know about intimacy and everything. So, I uh, this is from Jeffrey O'Brien's Darkness Betrayed article that's actually included with the Criterion Blue. But he says, you know, rarely had a Hollywood film of any genre so elliptically yet vividly expressed a fundamental inability to connect, a wounding sexual grief manifested in moods of frustration, mistrust, irritation, appeasement, yearning, hapless fascination, and unbreachable depression. Oh my god! So my dog like gagged when I. <laughs> <laughs> it is an intimate story about the terrors of intimacy. No mere otherworldly horror could match the shot of Oliver turning away in sheer incapacity, lighting a cigarette while Lorena is attempting to convey the depth of her anguish. He is the very embodiment of that normal American lie that haunts cat people like a specter, and that from Arena's perspective is as much a torment and a destructive force as her own ancestral curse. Hmm. That's actually an interesting point because we haven't really discussed the otherness part of this. Like we talked about the queerness in Arena, but Mm -hmm. I mean, I was intrigued to note that in the reviews from the 40s, people singled her out as a bad actress or they found her dialect incomprehensible. Like, oh, her (laughs) accent work is really hard. She obviously doesn't speak fluent English. And I think that it is a absolutely integral to this movie. Yeah. And B, I find it like this interesting mix between the coquettish kind of foreigner that we like to exoticize, but also it serves to isolate her further. The fact that even verbally, she can't always communicate in a way that these dumb, dumb Americans understand her. Well, and I think that makes Oliver more despicable because even though we don't get any like confirmation seemingly of ill intent from in the beginning but it almost seems like he's like hey like look here's this foreign lady who has no one else to help her out mm-hmm. i can make her mine it's predatory yeah i mean he has that whole section where he he says he's drawn to her and when she's in a room he just has to touch her it's absolutely oh, predatory gross <laughs> and there is i mean like there is a yeah, Ugh, fucking Oliver. He sucks. <laughs> he totally sucks. I mean, the funny thing is, is that I think the movie does a fantastic job of making you think that he's actually okay, and then peeling it back over the course of yeah. the runtime to say, no, he's actually kind of terrible. I mean, okay, look, I'm sorry. I have to read this quote that he says. And I, I, I know I said at the beginning, but literally, so he's talking to Alice, and he just goes, matter-of-factly, You know, it's a funny thing. I've never been unhappy before. Things have always gone swell for me. I had a grand time as a kid. Lots of fun at school. With you at the office and Commodore. That's why I don't know what to do about all this. Hmm. I mean, really, that is like, we should like take that. That is like the epitome of like cishet white privilege. (laughs) Yes. It reminded me of this really super funny line from Clone High. So one of the characters is JFK. Like all of the characters are clones, but they're teenage clones of their famous selves. And at one point, JFK just breaks down crying and he goes, I'm a Kennedy. I'm not accustomed to tragedy. (laughs) (laughs) Joe, you really should start watching The Great on Hulu because that is Nicholas Holt's character to a T. <laughs> I just, I, I love these people who are confronted with conflict or challenge for the first time, and they are just completely at a loss. And the rest of us are like, over here, smoking a cigarette, looking at them and saying, bitch, 
that is my entire fucking life. <laughs> I've never been like every person with depression is like, fuck you, dude. Exactly. <laughs> like, go fuck yourself. Yeah, and it's, it's such a counterpoint of uh, that line, such a counterpoint in a film that does have that kind of melancholy mm-hmm. weight, mm-hmm. weight to it. Yeah. Like Arena's over here literally clawing the furniture and talking about how she feels more comfortable in the darkness. And he's like, I just don't know if I ever loved her. (laughs) Like, okay, Oliver, that's great for you. (laughs) Okay, so Arena ends up spending the night wandering around. She goes to the zoo. She comes back. He's very apologetic. And then, yes, this is where he talks about how he's never experienced a challenge before. And this upsets Alice so much, she starts crying and she confesses her love for him. And then he goes... Well, that's so great. Gosh, I don't even know if I love Arena anymore. And you're just like, oh my God, dude. Like this other woman just confessed she loves you. And he's so deluded. This is the line though, because he says, you know, he's like, oh, I don't really know her. I guess in a way we're strangers. And Alice's reply to this is, well, we'll never be strangers. And it's like, girl, you already said you loved him. Back off. (laughs) Yeah, this I think is the moment, like it's one step too far. You know what? You've said your piece, but also now it seems like you're active. Like, I think she even says like, we should run away and just be happy together. And you're like, girl, he's saying he's got a few problems in his marriage, but back off. But you know what, though? He because he doesn't immediately say, yeah, let's do that and run off with her. She's like, all right, well, fuck you, too, then. (laughs) (laughs) Well, think about the fact that also he has been confiding all of the problems to her. Mm -hmm. So at this point in time, she's probably already also thinking that you know, Irena is abnormal and there is something right. wrong and she doesn't right. fit and she's the abnormal one. Whereas Alice is like, well, bitch, here I am. I'm the normal one. We could go mm-hmm. live this cishet happy life. Right. Again, everyone go watch Curse of the Cat People. <laughs> <laughs> I love the tease, Heather. I love it. <laughs> Okay, so Dr. Judd tracks down Arena at the zoo because she hasn't come back for a second session because she was like, I tried it once. No, thanks. I'm, I'm done. Does he, does he have no other patients that he can be talking to? He has to go find this woman at the zoo? I mean, if you want to be super cynical, you could say, well, he's in the habit of tracking down the ones he finds attractive. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's what I think. Yeah. So she ends up impressing him by knowing the difference between her soul and her mind. She's actually very eloquent in this scene. So part of me is like, hey, critics, why don't you shut the fuck oh, up? That is what I was going to say, actually. I, I, A, her accent is fine. It's like, fine. I can, I can clearly understand everything she says. Um, I don't know. I, I really like she has this, you know, this naivete to her, mm-hmm. but... I don't even know if we get a full arc for her from beginning to end, but like there are like just little shades of agency that are added to her as the film goes on mm-hmm. that I like. I mean, I think that there's a lot of agency ultimately in the sense that at the base level of the film, neither Oliver or Dr. Judd get to control her. She's right. she's responsible there for her go. own destiny, but of course it leads to yeah. tragedy. Yeah, yeah, it's tragic, but yeah. she she's responsible. Yeah. There you go. No, and and I think that's the way we have to look at it as a happy text in a way. It's like, even though we're left with yet another queer character who has to die at the end of this film, at least she goes out by her own hand. Like, I could see a different version of this film ending with her ending up in a mental institution. Yeah, or as a leopard in a fucking cage. (laughs) 
<laughs> Sorry. No pointing fingers. No pointing fingers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I will say there's a line earlier on where she talks, this is like really early in their relationship. She says that, you know, she wants to have a normal, happy life. She's mm-hmm. like, you know, she's talking about how she's jealous of all the women she sees yeah. and she desires to be normal and free. And there is something like, this is the sad part of like, Yes. Queerness, queerness at that time. She knew she would never be, you know, air quote, normal. Right. But she chose her way to be free. Yeah. Yeah. Like she gives it the good old fashioned try because she feels like she has to. And all she's left is wanting because normalcy is a fucking lie. Who she is, is normal. It's just that in 1942, she can't be that person. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So we get another fight between the married couple and Oliver decides he's going to head out to the office, even though it's clearly the middle of the night. (laughs) But when he ends up uh, running into a woman who's cleaning the entryway, he pauses and decides that he's going to go for coffee and apple Apple. fucking pie. (laughs) (laughs) Just that alone. I'm like, oh, my God, he's the quintessential all American boy. Yes. I mean, this is during World War II, so I'm sure they're like, patriotism, patriotism, patriotism. Right. <laughs> I know, but think about when everyone gets served their pie later. It's mm-hmm. like, she ha- she got barbarian cream. I forget what Dr. Asshole gets, right. but again, right. he gets apple pie. I think yeah. it is. Oh, it's a condemnation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he called himself an Americano at one point, too. Like, whatever he's, you yeah. know. It's like Bavarian cream, so ethnic. Yeah. Basically. Ooh, even here, she doesn't fit in. Why can't she just order normal shit? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we see two food establishments in this film, and one is the Serbian restaurant that they go to after they get married. And this is where it's like, oh, she's frigid. She's weird. Look at that cat lady. She's sexy. (laughs) And here it's like, well, if you go to the All-American Diner, you can get an apple pie and you can just spend the whole night gabbing with your best gal. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm I'm so sassy tonight. I don't know why. (laughs) <laughs> um, I am loving this. It's like, it's like one of those, yeah, keep going, please keep going. <laughs> <laughs> So we get this heartbreaking moment because we implicitly understand what's going on when Arena calls the office. But of course, because he's off getting his fucking pie, she ends up hearing Alice instead. And she default assumes there's something more going on. And when she walks to the office, she sees them in the diner and they are having a gay old time. But not the right kind of gay old time. <laughs> yeah, the worst kind of gay old time. Yeah. The, the straight old the time. The straight old time. <laughs> and instead of walking in to confront them, she decides to slink back and um, stalk. <laughs> yes. Okay, so I would argue, and Heather, I'm interested to know if you would agree with me. Everyone talks about the pool scene in this movie. And for my money, I do love the pool scene. But this sidewalk, quote unquote, chase scene is the height of perfection in this movie. Like, this is what I always remember about this movie. Yes. Especially because it's like the punctuation point is that the Luton bus, as they call it, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Yeah. No, I think, I mean, the, the whole scene is brilliantly constructed to the point we've already established that Alice is queen bitch of the hats and it's yes. the only hat she wears that has the feathers in it during mm-hmm. the stalking scene. Like those kinds of little touches, you're just like, mwah, mwah, those are my chef's kiss. Yeah. We've already seen one canary go, Alice, could you be next? Exactly. Well, I, this is actually one where I, I would love to see this scene specifically in a theater because the light is so important oh, to this scene. so good. 
good. I mean, we have, you know, we have her feet, like the heels on the floor. Boom, 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 boom. But mm-hmm. it's like we're also going in and out of darkness into lightness into darkness into lightness so much. And it's like it does build up tension really, really, really well. And again, yeah, punctuating it with that bus scare um, yes. is just so love bad. it. <laughs> and I love, too, that this anticipates the seventh victim because we get that similar not quite chasing down the alley right with yeah. Jacqueline so it's like Luton figured out oh my god this is so effective I should use this again in another movie yeah and correct me if I'm wrong do we hear a cat growling before the bus shows up so it's like the cat growl kind of morphs into the sound of the bus yes yes okay. because we see the we see the tree shaking behind Alice as she's like mm-hmm. walking along god yes yeah, that, that that was I mean I thought all like, that that morphing of the sound was my favorite part of this like, mm. so creative I love it I mean, the sound design in this film is like aces because they didn't have the budget for right. all of the showy visuals, mm-hmm. but it's so brilliant. And I bet you if we like took the time, I mean, you guys watch a zillion films, like I'm sure <laughs> that we can trace like the whole how sound design and horror probably shifted mm-hmm. after these films with Luton. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, jo- jo- I mean, I think you are, cr- again, if this is not the first jump scare in horror, like it is... The most notable one this early on. Like, I think right. you could argue that maybe, like, like a silent film like Nosferatu has a jump scare, but it's sure. not from sound. It's from, like, imagery. Mm-hmm. And think of how much we rely on we being the... The audience. <laughs> I don't Yeah. Like, just think of how many films these days, horror films, completely rely on auditory jump scares. Right. Yeah. In Nosferatu, it's a jump scare where it's like, it's a, oh, it's a jump cut. So it's instead of it, the jump cut is the jump scare in Nosferatu. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And to me, this is like the precursor to all modern day examples where we get that music sting, right? Like mm-hmm. when the cat jumps out of the closet and scares our protagonist. Like that's literally what this bus is with the screech of the brakes. Yeah. Yeah. They mm-hmm. even called this, I remember this in film school because we actually had a study. It was like, it's called the Luton bus mm-hmm. or the cat scare. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That was how I was introduced to the concept, too. Oh, wait. Wait, wait, wait. I'm sorry. Wait, wait. The, 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 the term cat scare yes. comes from, comes this, from movie? this movie. This movie. Yeah. This sequence. I literally thought cat scare was just like, oh, a cat jumps through a window like in Friday the 13th part two. Like that's your your, your bad jump scare with a cat. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's what it becomes. But this is where it starts. Oh, that's so funny. I didn't even think about that. I think this film has a profound influence on a lot of horror films that we love. Like I personally, I have no, I'm just going to make up shit now. (laughs) I I totally think that we haven't talked about the office cat, Mm -hmm. John Paul Jones, but I totally think that that's Jonesy. Jonesy. I mean, Jonesy's named after John Paul Jones. Mm -hmm. So we got Alien, we got Batman Returns. We got Friday the 13th Part 2. <laughs> I mean, basically the shift in horror film where you had the explicit monsters to suggestive horror with psychological interiority. Mm-hmm. Like, that's that's, that's because yeah. of this. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> I just, I know I keep harping on it, but I love that so much of this was in response to the fact that we didn't have the money. So we had to get fucking creative. Yeah. I mean, I've written about this before. A lot of times I have a really deep soft spot for first films of a lot of filmmakers because mm-hmm. 
they didn't have right. all the money. And then when you get these people who have talent and then they all have mm-hmm. all this money thrown at them, they it's like they lose a lot of their creativity because they're not thinking outside the box. Yeah, it inspires laziness. Um, yes, yes, yeah. And, and, no, you're 100% correct. I mean, I, I was just talking about this with Joe with like Terrifier 2, you know, a, a movie made for $250,000 that has amazing, incredible practical gore effects. And then you see these like, let's say $5 million budgeted Blumhouse movies and it's like, there's no yeah. effort in anything. <laughs> well, I think it's also, I don't want to say laziness because none of us have made movies and it is a yeah. huge undertaking. But I do think people end up getting co-opted into regimented systems of normalcy. Like, oh, well, we mm. wouldn't do it that way because now you're part of a system. We've got a department that'll do that. We've got FX houses that we just like send the work over to and so on. So I think people end up, they don't have to be creative because they just get told, oh, do it the way that everybody else does it, which well, is sad, right? I think it's also like having money. It maybe like doesn't that lazy, but it inspires the use of shortcuts. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, I think that Joe, the way you just kind of said that was a very kind way of saying something. It's <laughs> <laughs> the two of you are like, let's just call a spade a spade. <laughs> no, I think you're right. I think it becomes institutionalized. And as people get more fame and money, they, I, I used to joke that I want to start a company that says, I'll say no. And I wanted to give people <laughs> who have power and money my number and tell me your idea. I will be honest. If I think it's a good idea, I'll say it. But if you come to me and you're going to be like, I'm going to make Halloween ends, I'll say no. <laughs> <laughs> um, Heather, I would like to hire David Gordon Green for a future project. What do you think about this? I'll say no. <laughs> I'll say no. Exactly. I'm so upset that he has the exorcist now. Oh, my God. It's no. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? You could have Halloween, but keep your fucking hands off of it. Exactly. I'm very upset. So it is one of those things that I think you're right. It's about the institutionalization of stuff, but it's also about the replication of power. And I think these guys actually think that they are being clever and creative at times mm-hmm. when they're not. And I think there's something for a lot of filmmakers before they make it. They're just creative souls trying to do their art. Right. Maybe I'm giving them a little bit too much yeah, maybe I'm making that a little too poetic in my head, but I, <laughs> I do think there is something there. I don't know what we're even talking about anymore. To even bring it back to this film, I mean, like, oh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, cat no, people. Like, no, immediately after this, you know, so we get the zookeeper or the groundskeeper finding some dead sheep and whatever. But yeah. it's such a simple. I guess I'm going to call it an effect, but how we see the paw prints of the panther yes. turn into high-heeled shoe uh-huh. prints. Yeah. Again, chef's kiss. I, I can't, I, truly, I cannot think of any time where I've seen high-heeled shoe prints. Yeah. I mean, yeah. what does Bryce <laughs> yeah. Dallas Howard leave in that uh, Jurassic <laughs> Kingdom movie? <laughs> I just mean you normally just see footprints. So I love yeah. the yeah. detail where it's like, no, 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 we have to show it's a woman. So it's you get like the you know, the front of the foot and then like that little fucking heel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as the, as the, oh, it's so good. And it's also really creepy. Yeah, it's incredibly effective. Yeah, it's so unsettling and unnatural, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Arena goes home and she cries in the bath. She has nightmares of these animated cats and she hears Dr. Judd's words about the psychic need for death. Dr. Judd dressed up as uh, uh, okay, King, as a King John. King John, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Very weird. It's very weird. But just a touch of surreal into the film. Mm-hmm. And in the morning, it's enough to drive her back to the zoo. And this is where she steals the key for the panther cage. 
motions are in place. Wait, yeah. no, the pieces are in place. <laughs> the pieces are in place. And then she's, you know, but she hasn't given up. Like she's still actively engaged in her marriage. She's trying to put on appearances. So she okay. goes to this museum <laughs> and Alice and Oliver basically say, hey, we might as well be fucking and or dating right now. So this must be boring for you. Why don't you just <laughs> go away? Go wait in the lobby. And I'm like, what the what are you doing? Yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. so bizarre. I'm just like, I don't understand how you don't think you're sending this woman into an emotional tailspin. Well, because he he doesn't care about her. He does, yeah, he only cares about his needs. Mm-hmm. Oh boy, oh boy. So uh, at this point, Arena's pretty fed up, and she takes it out on Alice by following her to the pool, and we get the other infamous sequence in this film as Alice gets to tread water while she is threatened by growling shadows. Um, I watched this scene several times because... Because it's a fucking banger. That's well, because there's there's one shot where it's like, I feel like, because I want to see, I'm like, I feel like I can see a panther right. in there. I feel like I can see it. Mm-hmm. Like I see the shape of a panther, but I can't tell. It's so effective at like making you think you're seeing something when you're actually not. I guarantee you they did not have a panther on set for yeah, this. There was, yeah, there was no, no. panther. I know, no. no. I, but I'm the exact same way as you, Trace. I hear it and I I just start squinting. I think I even crept closer to the TV because I could have sworn I saw the outline. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's so fantastically effective. Yeah. Well, and again, I love it. It's like, you know, she, she jumps for Alice. She jumps in this pool because it's like, oh, my God, someone's coming after me. Where's the safest place for me? Mm-hmm. The middle of the pool. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, yeah, because cats don't like water and shit at oh, this no. point in time. Yeah. I know, I mean, sorry, I, sorry I, I, that wasn't meant to be like making fun of her. Like literally <laughs> it is correct because if someone, be it a person or a cat or whatever, that is the safest place for her because at least she has a full view and she has a place, a chance to like, I guess, swim in the other direction if it mm-hmm. jumps in after her. Yeah, but I'm actually glad that you said it and it maybe could have been misinterpreted because I guarantee you that somebody was like, well, what a dumb bitch. Why'd you hop in the pool? And it's like, no. Uh, a, yes, exactly what you said, Heather, because cats are afraid of water, but also what you said, Trace, you know, it gives her this vantage point, but it also is just so good visually at isolating Alice, right? Like danger could be coming at her from any direction because she is so exposed and vulnerable. But you know what I think would make this scene even better is if her titties were out. Oh my God, <laughs> I, I cannot. And... <laughs> It's also fucking, it's a net O'Toole, like I, Superman 3s, like this is Clark okay. Kent's mother. To, 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 uh, to clarify, everyone of you have not seen the remake of this movie, so we have a net O'Toole undressing in the locker room, and I was like, oh, hey, cool, we're just going to have her put her swimsuit on, she's going to go to this uh, uh, pool. No, 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 we focus on just her topless self in this locker room before mm-hmm. she's like, oops, I got to run to the pool, and then she's topless for the rest of the pool. It just, yep. it feels <laughs> so egregious. Like, I, it doesn't feel like it's informed by the character at all. It's just like, it's the 80s, tits out. I mean, you could argue it's like, oh my God, she's so scared. She doesn't take the time to put her top on to jump before she jumps in this pool. Sure. But it doesn't play that way. <laughs> it doesn't play that way. No. And it is, it's like, I don't know which one of you just said it, but it was just like... For that character, like, Annette Tool is the best part. I mean, Natasha Kinsey is, like, a wonderful for me to look at, but <laughs> Annette Tool's character is, like, she's so... She's so likable. Yeah, charming. She's, like, a, like, a, like effervescence and a charm and a, like, 
ease to her. Well, and she does weird. interact more with Kinski in that movie than um than Alice and Irina do in the original film too. Mm-hmm. But that's the deflating of the sexual tension you're talking about earlier as well. Yes. Which is weird, right? Like you would think more interactions would have meant more opportunities to lean into it. Yeah, well, it's the 80s. Um, but I do <laughs> I do love when Alice finally screams in this pool and we just cut to the women in the lobby who like crane their heads like, what's going on in there? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Alice, she's having a conniption fit in the pool again. <laughs> I do love that just in case you weren't really sure, like, oh, wait for a moment, we doubt Alice and think that maybe she's having a bit of a fit, but it's all in her mind. We get this confirmation with the robe that comes out and it has just been slashed to ribbons. So I guess my only question is, and maybe maybe this is a bad logic question, but like, who did Irena fuck or kiss or whatever to turn into a cat? Or was it just her? It's just her rage. Yeah, yeah, it's her passions. Mm-hmm. Okay, so she so she doesn't have to. I mean, it's basically the thing where like if she fucks someone, she definitely will turn into a cat. Yes, but if she wills it enough, she can also do it by by choice. Yes, because she's like she has to be. Yeah, it's like she's spending all her time suppressing her mm-hmm. you know wild dark mm-hmm. instincts. So right. when she lets go of that repression, she is able to she transforms. Right. Imagine that. Imagine that. She also seems more in control. She's powerful. She's confident. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Imagine. Well, it, it's interesting contrasting these two scenes with Alice, where there is a control of a kind because you get the impression that Arena is so upset with what Alice is doing to her, whether you want to read that as her straight marriage or her sexual urges you pick Mm -hmm. but like she seems to be able to control like i'm gonna go after you maybe she doesn't know what she's doing when she's in animal form but the the impetus to change is there whereas what we see with dr judd when he forces himself on her later that to me seems uncontrolled and wild i agree yeah yeah but again i have a terrible reading that you're both going to appreciate when we get there. Okay. <laughs> okay. So um, I'm building it up too much. It, lower your expectations. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Alice relates these events to Dr. Judd because she is now 100% on the, this is not an irrational fear that Arena has. She tried to attack me as a panther. And of course, Dr. Judd is like, hmm, you're stupid. Don't These be such women. a woman. <laughs> yes, he, he, he has like an inability to believe any woman in his life. Correct. Yeah. Because Alice is like, hey, you're part of the problem. Like she's going to potentially come after you as well. And he's like, mm, I'll be fine. Don't worry about me, which I love. Yeah, his death is supremely satisfying. It's so true. Yeah. So... We get a scene, a follow-up scene between him and Arena when she finally acquiesces to come back for another session. And he, like, this is so fucking unprofessional of him. Mm-hmm. He accuses her of being clever and trying to dupe him. And he starts to talk about how hallucinations are symptoms of insanity and basically saying, like, he more or less says, just get rid of the cat shit and live your life. You're fine. Um, okay, but the miss is all punctuated where she's like, oh my god, but what if I kiss my husband? He's like, well, what if I kiss you? And it's right? just, and he's like on her fucking face. And I'm just like, dude, you are so unprofessional. <laughs> yeah, it's wild. It's really mm-hmm. wild. Like this scene, I think if you've ever had difficulties with your mental health and like not being taken seriously, 
this could potentially be very triggering because this dude is just so awful to her. Yeah. And it's only getting it worse. <laughs> yeah. 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 Things to look yeah. forward to. <laughs> so Arena goes home to Oliver and she's like, you know what? I've listened to Dr. Judd. I'm finally going to take his advice and I'm basically DTF. And he says, <laughs> I love Alice. <laughs> he's like, oh, I'm I think he even literally says it's too late. Yeah. <laughs> so she's now saying she's going to give you what you've been wanting this entire fucking movie. And you're in love with the woman with the hat. Got it. <laughs> uh, but the, they, we get this great, great shot when she claws the couch, though. Yeah. So I forgot about this scene. And I may have cackled <laughs> with delight. Because so good. A, I don't really know how they did the effect. And I think it looks great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we go to the diner. And this is basically people plotting about a woman's future without her consent or her like she's not even there yeah clearly pre-hippa i'm like are you talking about your patient's mental health mm -hmm. yes <laughs> also so he's like well i think the best course of action is for you to get the marriage annulled since you haven't fucked because uh the law says you can't divorce an insane person mm -hmm. um what <laughs> whoa <laughs> Yeah, so one final opportunity for Oliver to not be a huge piece of shit. He does decide that he is going to look after Arena. He will not have her committed. So, Oh, such a good person. <laughs> I mean, low benchmarks, low benchmarks. But when they sort of set this trap for Arena, she doesn't show up. So uh, this is when Alice happily tells Oliver, oh, well, we should get back to work anyway, because we're like super behind on things. Sure. And uh, Dr. Judd goes back for his cane, which I can't remember if we learn here that it has a knife in it or if we just learn that later. Oh, that makes sense, because I was trying to figure out what the significance of this was of him going back to get this cane. Well, the significance was he put the cane in there so he can get back in the house. Mm hmm. And then unlock the door so he could get back into the house again. Yeah. Uh, he's actively plotting. Yeah, Got he's it. like full on plotting. And then, yeah, we do know there's a sword in there at that point because he didn't, he, yeah, he showed it to Alice, right? I think so. Yeah. Oh, yes. When she warns him and he's oh, like, he's like I've, I've got protection. <laughs> yeah. He's going to use his phallus. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Although is, I mean, one way or another, he wants to use it. Exactly. And it's like he and they they had that like little wolf man shade in there about the silver bullet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess, yeah, because I mean, the cane is a very uh, prominent prop in the wolf man. So I guess that makes sense. I just love it. It's it's a, a little fuck you to the competitor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, really, this film, it's like it was made because of the wolf man, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like you take the wolf man, you take the female gothic, marry them together, give it a lower budget. So it's suggestive instead of explicit. And you got mm -hmm. cat people. There, there you go. go. This movie should not work, by all accounts, according to that. Well, I mean, I'm, I know we talked about the bus scene, we talked about the pool scene, the talking scene, but, like, I, I really do like this office scene. I think it's, it's done great. really well. Yeah. If you didn't really pay attention to the lighting, I feel like this is the scene that will make it the most apparent for you. So their drafting tables are just these pools of bright light, and mm -hmm. then all of the room is like shrouded in darkness but you can see that the lights are from the floor level and they disappear towards the ceiling and it's very evocative we get this fantastic it's not quite a long take but there's no editing and no camera movement as alice goes to answer the phone and so we get like a nice deep focus and it's 
it's showy in a way that they didn't need to make it this way. They could have shot this much more easily. And yet I think this is just kind of a, a bit of a flare. Well, the sets also, so th- this is from Bailey, the cinematographer of Schrader's remake, but he talks about how, you know, in a lot of this movie, you don't have a lot of, um, there's not a lot of set dressing on the walls because mm-hmm. if you don't have anything on the walls then the wall becomes a screen or a canvas for the shadow, for the lighting. And then the lighting and the shadows become your set dressing. Whereas in this scene, we have a lot of geometric shapes on the walls mm-hmm. adding to the light. And it's just an interesting stylistic choice for this particular scene. Yeah, I, I really appreciated that comment because I hadn't really thought about how you could use a blank mm-hmm. wall as a canvas in that way. And when this movie does play so much with light and shadow, you realize, oh, it's another way to project meaning onto the frame. Yep. And uh, in case that really didn't come clear to you, how about we pull a ruler off the wall when we think that there's a panther locked in the room with us and it takes the form of a fucking cross. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like the best use of a T-square in cinema. Right? <laughs> yeah. I actually had to rewind because I was like, where did he get a giant cross from? There's a yeah. bunch of them hanging on the wall because we, we've we got all these numbers, like they're drafting using the walls. So mm-hmm. it's like, hey, we didn't just arbitrarily pick a job for Oliver. Like we're incorporating it into the action of the film. Yeah. yeah isn't that so good? It's so good. <laughs> so good. It's so simple, right? I, I love hearing you like get giggly when you start talking about it. <laughs> I know. It's just so good. I was like, they fucking made them drafts people so they could have this fucking T-square moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's like, let's work backwards so that we can get to this moment and have it pay off without feeling like wait where did that come from how did this work yeah (laughs) so this moment is all great we actually do get to see some panther action in here and yeah it does feel like maybe it could have been inserted after the fact just to up the tension but what panther we do see is very effective Mm mm-hmm And then we bust out of this room, we go down to the lobby, we can smell Arena's perfume, which I love that touch. And I love that it's Alice who takes notice of it, and Oliver's completely oblivious. (laughs) He's like, what perfume? (laughs) My wife has a perfume? Hmm. (laughs) So uh, this is when Alice realizes that Dr. Judd is likely in danger, so she tries to call him, but he's already putting the moves on Arena, who has shown up, and... So the hot take that I mentioned was I saw more than one reading from people who say that Arena submits to this kiss willingly. Does that change your view of the movie if she does? I'm personally like, fine, fucking kill him. So the reason I don't like it is because I believe that he forces himself on her and she doesn't she doesn't give anything back to this. Like that's the reason to me why she ends up turning into a Panther is because Mm -hmm. she wasn't ready for this. She didn't want it. And then she exacts her revenge. The alternative, if she does give into this or she brings it upon herself is maybe more in line with the fatalistic bent of the film. So this is the start of her suicidal ideation where she says, okay, well, I'm going to submit to this heterosexual like this is what i'm meant to do i'm meant to kiss men and that prompts her to then change and decide okay i can't live this life but um i don't think so i, th- I, think, I don't think so yeah i think that th- i mean that shot is actually a beautiful shot where he imposes himself right maybe maybe there's a moment where she's like i'm not going to fight 
in this exact moment because I'm mm-hmm. going to give a whole lot of fight. Yeah. This <laughs> fucking piece of shit does this thing to me. Right. But she, her face does not change. No. And then the way the camera and the lighting shift and she kind of goes into darkness and the like mm. eyes kind of light, like, oh, so good. That's so good. So I do not think that she could, that was not a consensual kiss. No. Yeah, I, I guess, I guess, I, sorry, I guess when I, when I was referring to it as more so like a consensual in the sense of like she doesn't want to do it, but it happens because she, yeah, she, she knows she's going to turn into a cat and kill him. So she's like, mm, yeah, I'll, okay. I'll give into this because I want to turn into a cat and kill this person. She's already plotting. Okay, well, if you do this, I'm going to get you. Yeah. Yeah. She already, she already told him like he, whatever the fuck he said, like, I want to kiss you or what happens if I kiss you? And she's like, I would not like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, <laughs> she had already told him no more than once, I think. So right. I'm like, I think it was like, well, I'm going to, well, yeah, I think we're overthinking it. In well, a no, weird I, way. I, I guess because I, I was like, wait, wait, is it a problem that she's like, like choosing to kill this person? I guess I thought that was what the big issue was. Not the fact that she cons- that she's consenting to it. Because she quote unquote wanted it, you know. Yeah, but I, exactly. I, yeah. Honestly, my big thing is that when they're looking at the body, I really want her to walk in and just be like to, to Oliver and Alice, be like, "Well, it couldn't have been me after all. I'm not a cat, am I?" <laughs> <laughs> wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you fuckers. <sighs> yeah. So she she definitely murders him in cat form, and it's very satisfying. And then Alice and Oliver arrive as his dead body is being discovered and they're kind of not surprised or upset by this i think at this point alice has convinced oliver and they've now gone through this traumatic experience at the drafting business office place but it's just weird to me that they're not like holy shit people could die if we piss arena off like they don't seem that concerned i guess he knows what happiness is now (laughs) So we follow Arena through the fog as she returns to the Central Park Zoo. She releases the panther, and I could see people being slightly underwhelmed because we are dealing with a real animal. So it's shot in such a way that you understand that the panther has not quite attacked her, but it has wounded her fatally as it jumps by her. But it's very quick. Yeah. And she had already been, I mean, she... She had already been stabbed yeah, by Dr. She'd already been stabbed. Yeah, exactly. And like had half of the sword in her still. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Because of course, we've got to make sure that we remember that foreshadowy statue as part of the story. Yeah. And the first image she drew when she threw it on the ground and mm-hmm. plus, you know, his phallus killing her. Ugh. Getting Freudian on this shit. His straight phallus killed his her. His straight phallus. Yeah. 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 And that, that, like, I love the way that they positioned and lit the body because mm-hmm. it actually has an incredibly panther-like look yes. to it. Yeah. Because we, we also have a dead panther because the escaped cat has been hit and killed by a car. So it's like, there is no freedom for these cats in whichever form they take. Exactly. Again, tragic. Yeah. This is, I think, where the tragedy comes in. Whether or not you want to believe the whole film lives up to this i can't deny the power of this moment where you're just like oh this woman was cut down by society yeah oh yeah so of course alice and oliver arrive because all they do is play catch up in this last like 10 or so (laughs) minutes it's like they just wander around going oh well i guess now we can be happy (laughs) (laughs) don't know why i affected an accent for that but um (laughs) we're moving on so this is when oliver says 
oh, I guess Arena never lied to us. And this is where you can just eat shit, Oliver. Yeah, fuck off, dude. Yeah. <laughs> Which he does. He he fucks right off and walks off he the frame. He really does. Presumably into the next marriage because now he doesn't have to take care of Arena or annul the marriage because she's dead. So he can just move on to the blonde wife. <laughs> exactly. With the good hats. I mean, it, we've talked a little bit about the otherness, but I do think it's interesting that we've got a bit of a Betty and Veronica situation, and it's very <laughs> much like, get rid of the exotic, dark-haired foreigner so that we can marry the all-American blonde. Yeah. I mean, especially as, like, this is a film, like, as World War II is escalating for mm-hmm. the U.S., and... I mean, listen, I mean, I'm like giving it an excuse for 42. We're still incredibly racist and xenophobic. So it's just like. <laughs> what are you talking about? No, we're not. Yeah, we're good. It's, yeah. It's, it's rough. Yeah. So they walk away into presumably a happy ending. See previous comments about the sequel. But we, <laughs> we end with this uh, a holy sonnet from John Donne. But black sin hath betrayed it to endless night my world, both parts, which to me is the important part, both parts, the lesbian and the panther, both parts must die. Must die, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that is Happy Bob. Woo! <laughs> <sighs> I mean, even like, did you, did you like look at, um, there's a poster, I had a, like, had a friend that used to have a poster in like the... Um, what do you call fucking poster lines? Uh, like a tagline? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tagline. It was like, you know, the tagline on this poster was, she was marked with the curse of those who slink and court and kill by night. And I'm like, just take the word kill, make it slay. And it's literally gay people. Right. <laughs> it's an anthem, even. Exactly. <laughs> well, the Hayes Code said no to that. Ugh, Ugh, the haze fucking code. haze code. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say, I, I I feel like I'm gonna put on my geriatric glasses or something right now mm-hmm. because queerness was already existing in the shadows, and we've been relegated historically so long to different kinds of lives that were not at our fullest capabilities. Mm-hmm. There's something that the subtextual films, I find a deep resonance with them. Right. Because they have a match, they they feel like an embodied match to, and, and, and that's like to interrupt myself, it doesn't mean that I don't <laughs> love explicit queer horror films, because right. I do, but there is a there is something I have a really deep appreciation for subtextual queerness, because it feels, because you can watch films with straight people, and you're like, how do you not see this, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and it feels like it's more ours. I think it makes it like a puzzle, it, may, it makes the viewing experience more interesting, when it's implicit because it's almost like you're you're peeling back layers of an onion you're trying to solve a puzzle and i get that for some people they don't like that because they don't want to i don't want to think during the movie but like don't want to do that extra work right they want they they just they like the explicit and it's just kind of i don't know it's a more involved viewing experience if you're trying if you're looking for implicit uh subtext well i think even to to build on what heather's suggesting there's a whole audience of people who can watch a movie and not even know that they need to be looking for that, right? Like you're taking it at face value on the surface. And for queers, we're just seeing this other layer that is just naturally occurring because it's reflecting our lived experiences. Like it isn't more work for us because we're seeing ourselves in this. But mm-hmm. I don't know. I I definitely appreciate what you're saying, Heather, because I do feel like there's something more gratifying about these kinds of stories where it is just percolating underneath the surface 
And there's something powerful about seeing ourselves thriving and like fully out on the screen. And yet, I don't know. Yeah, this feels more true to the queer experience in some ways, some horrible, horrible experiences. Yeah, I I think one is the explicit side of it is seeing the representation, which is incredibly important. And I hope that, you know, behind the scenes, more varied humans get the ability to make films to put specific representations on. Like, that's all important. But there's something about that embodied aspect that connects with the subtextual, the liminality of queerness and the subtextual layering Mm -hmm. of these narratives. There's just something that... It's not that I, I don't want to say I miss it because I don't want to sound like I'm trying to be like, I want to go back to when persecution was even worse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I want to go it's back to when that. queers had to hide who they were and they had to sneak shit into the movies. They had what they wanted to do. I mean, let's just be real. Across the planet, queers are, I mean, legislatively in the Still United are. States, like, yeah, it's like we have made incredible strides. We have very, very far to go. And there's countries where you can be killed for being queer still. So, yeah, it's, um, yeah. I love this idea of everything that we've just sort of finished with. And let's go back to that observation that you had earlier, which is that this this presumably lesbian or bisexual woman saw herself in this film, right? Like, mm-hmm. we've always been here and we've always been doing that work. And even if it's not out and proud, like we're seeing in contemporary queer horror, I just love this idea that we've we've always seen ourselves on screen and sometimes it's just we had to hide it because the straight people were so scared of us. But you're reaching, Joe. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing queer about this movie at all. It's just a lady who's afraid of sex. There aren't women kissing in this movie. What queerness are you possibly seeing? Oh my god, like they're gonna people are gonna hate my book. Please don't come after me. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, whereas a I think a lot of people are going to love your book, Heather. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, people just don't know how to analyze film. It's fine. Um, but yes, that is <laughs> Cat People, everybody. Um, Heather, thank you so much for coming to talk about this. You've brought some wonderful insight to this conversation. Oh, that was like my pleasure. <laughs> it really was. I feel very like, yay, I want to go watch Cat People again. Uh, it's just nice to revisit too, right? Like there's something satisfying about going back to a classic film because i don't know like i don't have this movie in heavy rotation so i was so happy for an opportunity slash excuse to go back and watch it again mm-hmm. yeah and like i mean i feel like i'm just stumping now at this point in time but like i think all nine films that luton made at rko are like all of the nine horror films i think he made mm-hmm. 10 films there but there's one that like i think they all are worthy of a watch especially right. the last three that have Karloff in them because they gave like Karloff felt rescued by those films in a way because he was allowed to have a media role that was outside the universal world Mm. and like the influence of Luton I'm like Luton 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 but the (laughs) the influence of Luton like let's just not forget like Jacques Turner went on to make I don't know if you guys have covered Night of the Demon yet Um, no, but I, I I cover it on another podcast because we double featured it with Drag Me to Hell. Oh, right. awesome. Well, it's a, I think it's a great film, and I mm-hmm. think that it's really clear that I keep saying Luton's name, so I should kind of like admonish myself in the sense that I think filmmaking is a collaborative art, and that sure. these people all came together, and they had they were greater than the sum of their parts, and they made these right. amazing films. But I think that the influence of this time is clearly on Eye of the Demon. And then fucking 
Luton gave both Mark Robson, who went on to make Valley of the Dolls, mm-hmm. and they gave Robert Wise basically The Haunting is one of the best horror films ever made, in my opinion. So good. And the influence of that is also undeniable. Maybe not so much in West Side Story and The Sound of Music, but... <laughs> uh, can't win them all. Can't win them all. <laughs> well, um, okay, well, have, let everyone know. So wh- where can they find you on social media? Uh, I'm at Queer for Fear on Instagram. That's it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's all I do. Period. <laughs> like, full stop. Queer for Fear on Instagram. Well, please go follow her. She, I, I, I took a peep at your Instagram today, and you've got wonderful, like, little mini essays on your on, on the films you're watching when you post them on there. It's great. Yeah. I mean, what I'm doing is the entire book that I wrote was based on a survey that happened. It's the largest empirical study in horror studies, yeah. and it's just all queers. Yes. So 4,107 horror-loving queers did a survey, and I had asked everyone to give their top five favorite horror films and now i decided somewhere a few years ago i decided it was a good idea to commit to watching all 4187 (laughs) and that is what i am doing so and i i try to take the high road but sometimes i don't well i mean not all of those movies have been winners like as queers sometimes we have questionable tastes and i love that those tastes also get reflected in your musings and hopefully in your book but i guess one of the things that i would do a plug for is folks obviously we need to keep an eye out for when the book comes out but hopefully you're seeing yourself in heather's work because we helped to distribute that survey when you were doing it so you may see one of your own favorite films reflected in both the book as well as heather's posts mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if you did it if, and if you, if you did then. it if you didn't then fuck you you contributed <laughs> nothing nothing <laughs> i mean honestly my entire argument ultimately is it doesn't matter the film the entire genre is queer and mm-hmm. the proof is, the proof is in the pudding is that someone's favorite film is a serbian film and someone's favorite film is cat people 1982 and someone's favorite film is nosferatu there we go so what I'm getting is that you don't like a Serbian film. <laughs> <laughs> it's no judgment. I, I will just say that I know I have to rewatch it. And I'm just like, Ooh. oh, fuck. Can I like, you know, I'm like, I asked my partner, I was like, is it a lie if I don't actually rewatch it? <laughs> I said <laughs> I, I was going to rewatch it. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny because I, I, I like it. My husband really likes it. But like, I never want to watch it again. <laughs> I never yeah. want to watch it again. I saw it once and I was like, I got it. I don't, I, do I have to like live through those last moments? Like, I just, come on. Oh, yeah, I know that's fair. Uh, that's fair. Well, uh, well, okay. Well, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at horrorqueers. Shoot us an email at horrorqueers at gmail.com. Find us on Letterboxd, keep track of all the films we've covered. Go to our YouTube channel to check out our interviews with various horror filmmakers, as well as our monthly hangouts where we talk about uh, hot button issues of uh, the horror world. And if you want to chat with other listeners, please join our Facebook Horror Queers group. Uh, if you want to show us some love, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Or if you want to give us money, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. Today is the last day of November. So already in the Patreon this month, we've got episodes discussing the morals and ethics of true crime, uh, episode on the horror satire of the menu, and playing a bit of catch up this month uh, by doing episodes on Barbarian and Smile, the sleeper hits of the fall. 
And of course, for our audio commentary this month, we've got one on the 10-year anniversary of The Collection, um, the sequel to The Collector. Rip that franchise, because we're probably never getting a third one. Oh, yeah, no, definitely not, sadly. <laughs> but uh, Joe, I guess we're continuing a now annual tradition next week. Uh, what are we covering next week? <laughs> Oh boy, yeah, uh, I'm not exactly sure how we fell into this pattern, but I'm kind of excited because we had such a fun time with our Summer of Camp series earlier. Uh, we're going to do a campy entry, a bit of a holiday entry, but most specifically a Batman entry. So we're going to go to Schumacher territory to talk about Batman and Robin? Uh. <laughs> I will tell you this. It is obviously like not a good movie and it is a better film than Batman Forever, but it is a more watchable film than Batman Forever. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. We are going to have some talks, but yeah, I'm excited <laughs> to get back to the tits and the ass in the bat towel. <laughs> Me as well. But until then, everyone, we can cross out cat people. Indeed. And cross out horror queers. Horror queers.